Yo, what's going on, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Between Two Heads. My name is Jameson Wellborn, and I'm joined by my co-host, Addison Demora, a.k.a. Terpova. Today, okay. we are very excited for a super awesome episode. We've got Nick Tannen, better known as Nick T of Essential Extracts, joining us. Nick, what's up, bro? What's good, man? Thanks for having me. Yo, thanks for being here, man. I appreciate you taking the time. I know you just got off the road. I know you're super busy. It's going to be a long one. We, we appreciate you, you sitting down with us. Thank you. So before we jump into all the work you're doing now, all the work you've done in the space, um, we want to take it back to the beginning. Um, I know you grew up in the Bay. What was that like growing up as a, as a young youth running around? Yeah, I had a blessed upbringing, blessed childhood, um, giving thanks that I have a very supportive family, a, a family that's pushed me and motivated me and uh, been behind me with all my moves from team sports as a kid to extreme sports, you know, to even choosing my direction in school. Cause I, you know, I only spent a couple of weeks in high school um, and uh, they were supportive in all of my moves. So um, definitely giving thanks for a blessed upbringing. Nice. So what were you interested in as a kid? Like, you know, c coming up, was it, was it sports? Was it street bikes? Was it science? What, what was it? Yeah, I was into sports, uh, mainly board sports. So skateboarding, surfing, snowboarding, those were my main three go-tos. Um, and, you know, I had the type of mom that would rock me and my friends around in the minivan to the skate parks as a kid. That's, that's the type of family that I grew up in. So, um, yeah, once again, extremely blessed, for real. Thank you, Mom. Happy Mother's Day. Hey, happy Mother's Day. So you talk a little bit about your, uh, or you allude to your first experience with cannabis in your uh, interview with Shiragam on the Hashishan, but you don't go into detail about it. Can you share with us what that first experience was like? Yeah, yeah. I thought I had <laughs> gone into detail, but maybe I didn't. Um, we had, actually, my mom's friend had a German foreign exchange student. And there came a point where that family could not handle this kid. <laughs> and my, my family was like, oh, we'll, we'll take him for a little bit. And uh, one of the first outings that we had this German foreign exchange student was a family camping trip to, I believe it was Pinecrest. It could have even been Benbo though, come to think of it. Um, either way, it was, it was somewhere up in Northern California, somewhere that I trod consistently today, which is a trip. Um, and I remember going out on a raft with this, this guy from Germany. I was probably 12 years old. I think he was 13. And we get out on this raft on the little, you know, creek or lake. I think it was a river. Yeah, it was a mellow river. And uh, we get out on the raft. And uh, he opens up a pack of cigarettes. And he lights a cigarette. And I'm like, okay, okay, you know, this is uh, this is cool to me. I'm I'm a 12 year old kid. I like smoke in general. I've always liked smoke. And he passes the cigarette to me after he rips it once or twice, and I hit it, and it fucking tasted horrible. This is probably my first experience with a cigarette. It tasted fucking horrible, and I instantly, my instant reaction was to throw it into the water, like into the river. <laughs> And he looks at me and he's fucking vexed. He's like, what the fuck, man? I, I, I brought those all the way from Germany. I can't buy them here. I'm 13, you know? And I'm like, oh, shit, sorry, man. 
And he goes in, digs, digs into a cigarette pack, and he pulls one out that looks a little different, a little comical. And he's like, don't fucking throw this one. And he lights this thing up, hits it a few times, and he passes it to me. And I instantly am like, all right, this is a cool kid from Germany. I'm down. Let's, let's try this. And it was a spliff. I remember nice. specifically it was tobacco <laughs> and cannabis. And when I hit it, I was like, whoa, that tastes way better. And I didn't throw that one, and I kept wanting to hit it. Um, I don't recall if I actually got high that first time, but I was definitely feeling the experience and the energy. Um, you know, after I threw away homie's cigarette and he got a little mad at me, it was all positive from there on out. Um, you know, smoking a joint <laughs> on the raft, on the river, family camping trip with the German foreign exchange student. Do you ever uh, still talk to that German foreign exchange student? You ever connect I with I don't. You know what, though? Crazy you bring that up because out of nowhere, I haven't talked to this friend of mine um another you know exchange situation that really got me into spliffs that much further was when i was living in tahoe california i uh had this this homie of mine this friend of mine from london living next door and they had some issues him and the uh the guy he was living with and he ended up coming to live with me next door at my spot which i was i didn't own the spot i wasn't even really renting a room i was a futon guy so i had like the living room set up with some dressers and stuff and this is tahoe in the late 90s early 2000s you know we were just trying to trying to ride every day we could so we packed as many people in the houses as we possibly could comfortably and uh yeah so Biko taught me a lot about rolling spliffs and rolling back spliffs back flips as he called them rolling backwards so that you're not using or smoking a whole double layer of paper you're ripping off so you have one even layer of paper and uh, he taught me a lot about that and i feel like even biko was one of the first people to use a longer crutch um <laughs> You know, he taught me some things to avoid, though, some things that I don't like. Like he used uh, he used Marlboro, and I still to this day hate the taste of a Marlboro and a spliff. Um, and it made me very particular with how I smoke my spliffs, what con ganja goes in and what type of tobacco or graba or front end that I use. Um, so, yeah, that was uh, a little bit of this, the first story. Um you know, with the German foreign exchange student leading up into the second story, which really got me going further into this spliff movement. Hey we're we're going to go, we're going to go into it all. I mean, I think that it would be really cool for you to somehow, if you could reach out to that uh, first foreign exchange, German foreign exchange student and, uh, and be like, Hey man, I, I, I kind of took this weed thing and ran with it. A little <laughs> for bit. real. <laughs> yeah. Really. Track them down. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, that's very cool. Before we, Jumping in into to more of the cannabis side of things, like something that I've noticed from you know when I was first introduced to you was was uh, the musical presence in your life. You know, it's it's very clear from a, an outsider looking in that music plays a big role in your life, um, and specifically island reggae dance hall soca type music. Um, when did that influence start? Was that something that happened at a young age or did that, that happen later in life? I think it started in the womb because um, <laughs> I was definitely born to two hippies, um, you know, and 
I remember from a young age looking through my parents' record collection and it was nothing but Bob Marley, Cheech and Chong and some classic rock records, you know, but mainly it was like my parents had the whole Cheech and Chong fucking, you know, like library, every one and every single Bob Marley album. My mom's brother, my uncle gave me one of my first vinyls and it was Bob Marley Kaya. Um, So from a young, young age, I've been into (laughs) reggae music. Um, And then, you know, really, I think the first thing that, I, I don't know, really kicked off music in general for me was I started selling weed as a teenager. And, you know, the, the guy, my supplier was really into like culture, very specifically like Sizzla and Capleton and, um, you know, Buju and that type of, uh, that type of vibe really into Sizzla actually, you know, like that's the cat that had every single Sizzla album and really got me into Sizzla specifically, which got me into, you know, reggae in general um but i think you know as a teenager sizzla was one of the first artists that really got me into jamaican reggae music so so you're 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 snowboarding you're maybe moving something here and there you're really getting into the music scene when did you start heading up to norcal and and exploring uh mechanical separation um you know right probably around the same time before tahoe so i was living in tahoe when i was like 16 17 because i remember struggling to buy cigarettes for my spliffs um but i i made it happen um so yeah i'd say probably like 14 15 years old that's very cool. And so what was like at that time you're you're going up and and you're literally taking these these bags of trim off these farmers purely because they're they're, they're looking to get rid of it. And what were you, what were you doing? Like what what did that look like the first couple of runs back down? Like how are you how are you handling that material? Yeah, just to back it up a little bit. Um I had some friends i I started smoking hash like right before junior college and so it was like in between middle school and junior college because i really only went to high school for a couple weeks and went to junior college instead of high school um so we started putting this black pliable mildewy hash on top of bong bowls that's like my first you know recollection or memory of hash and wanting to know more about it and wanting to learn how to make it um so you know around that same time you know between 13 and 16 years old is when i really got into it and um i started going up to my uncle's property up in mendo and you know i I had this friend Armando, really, this friend Armando was the guy that got me into going up to Mendo and Humboldt because he would do this like run. He would take his pickup truck up there. And this is before he had a license. I'm pretty positive. Um, He would take his pickup truck up there. We were both from uh, Marin County, uh, Bay Area, hanging out and smoking hash together. And I kept being like, how does this kid have so much hash? And so I kind of followed his trend. He actually got 
popped a couple times doing this. So I'm like, I got to be a lot more safe and more careful. I'm not going to take a pickup truck and load up the bed of the pickup truck with black plastic trash bags full of this stuff like he was. I'm going to take mom's minivan <laughs> and be a little bit smarter about it. Um, of course, I had some trouble too, though. Um, not with the law, but with uh, some... Um, some bicycle clubs, some motorcycle clubs, um, stopping me on my way back down the hill and, and smelling me basically and robbing me. So, uh, that was, uh, kind of how it, it first started is, uh, going up to Mendo to see the uncle eventually meeting all his neighbors and some of them not even meeting because his neighbors were doing the same thing as him. And they were just throwing these fucking trash bags. That was your original question. They were black trash bags full of trim, some larf, a lot of fan leaf, you know, it was just everything that they didn't want on their property and they'd throw it off their property because it was more weight that would, you know, mm -hmm. be, uh, detrimental to their livelihood, you know, having that on the property. Yep. So they yeah, wanted it off the property as fast as possible. You know, there were some people that made hash, of course, back then a ton, but really a lot of the people that I was working with and that I was talking to, they just wanted the trim and everything else that wasn't the top nugs off their property because back then, you know, they just didn't want to get caught with that extra weight. Yeah. And that's, that was back in the day when they would, if they raided you, they would just take everything and weigh it. And, and you would get hit with that weight, you know? So if you, if you had a 20 lighter or if you just did, you know, 50 plants, 40 plants, all that extra waste that was there was going to almost triple or quadruple whatever they would charge you with. So yeah, that was, and that was kind of the birth of like a lot of guys getting a lot of trim out. We were talking about it last night about like how there were these kind of, you know, these fly boys from the Bay that, that I would see that had that exact same, plan you know they just they knew cats up north they go up there get trimmed they bring it down and it was like right when bho blew up mm -hmm. there were fucking i mean my boys had a house and and uh i think it was like richmond and i mean i was paying for the house but it was like we had that was our first concentrate company i think it was gas station uh when we did that one or no i think it was 41 wax when we did that and it was the exact same thing it was just like so much fucking trash bags on trash bags of trim because people didn't want to get popped with that shit. You know, it was like, nah, fuck that. So, but that's great that that was kind of how you, you sort of jumped in and got in at that point. What was the, uh, what was the, uh, like, what was the quality of the stuff that you were making to start with? Was it, um, what was that stuff like? Was it more, cause you were saying that you had like, you know, the access that you had at the point, it sounded like was more like, <clears throat> you know, water hash and maybe a little mildewy and not so great. 100%. Were you able to make better stuff? Were you able to kind of like up the game and start to make crazier shit? Yeah, but it wasn't really until I started coming out to Colorado um, after Tahoe. So like 2001 mm -hmm. is when I moved out to Colorado that I started doing the drive back and forth. And I was like, yo, I'm not going to make this drive and make this journey unless you guys start controlling this quality because – Literally, the initially before you know when I before living in Tahoe and all that, I'd say eighty to ninety five percent of what I was getting was mildewy because it was sitting in a fucking yeah. black trash bag. Most of those yeah. farmers were trimming wet back then, so they were putting wet trim into a trash bag, and most of it just smelled like mildew and and chlorophyll. You'd get those very specific bags that had some diesel to it, and that was like mm -hmm. the first sour diesels. You know, really. Um, 
I would smell that one bag and be like, oh shit, it smells like mold, but there's something else in there, you know? And those are mm -hmm. the ones we really collected. Those are the ones <laughs> that I would keep for the head. Those are the ones we would, you know, make the patties and, and put it in our um, cellophane and in the, uh, in our bandanas we all had dreadlocks and shit you know so we all have bandanas so we were wrapping in in cellophane and bandanas and putting in our back pocket or in our shoe but those are the ones we kept separate for ourselves the other shit we didn't really know about or care about that shit went moldy you know and mm -hmm. we sold it either way you know it, it just it, it is what it was it was moldy before i even got the material it was moldy when i sold it and that was a big part about you know you you mentioned butane coming into play when butane came into play, you know, around the same time for me, late 90s, early 2000s, and I was still making this brown, black, pliable, mildew smelling stuff, I was like, fuck, we got to get on this train. So I was yeah. blastantane myself, you know? Yep. Um, and then eventually I was like, wait, what am I doing to my friends? Because we didn't know a lot about what we were putting into that product, all the heavy metals and uh, isopentane and isobutane and all the crazy, you know, extra shit. Uh, oddly enough, uh, it was it might have been safer to smoke traces all solids than to smoke aspergillus and fusarium, because <laughs> that's what would be forming on on a lot of the. And me and you used to have that conversation. I remember back then, or just soon after that, when we first met, I was more of a VHO guy, and I'd always be like, "Yeah, but." You know, you're not going to get aspergillus. You're not going to have fusarium because shit. Back then, honestly, a lot of the water hash, because of what Nick's talking about, was not really the best quality stuff. Other, you know, it, you'd get it and you kind of wipe the mold off it and be like, "Hey, we're good," you know, like because you know that's just the quality of it. And and the only sort of example we had, I think, was like, you know, when you went to Amsterdam and saw like the Lebanese hash and the other stuff. There really wasn't this crazy comparison. So. A no, it was NorCal. Did. NorCal yeah. was the big producer of bubble hash or water hash for the whole yeah. world, you know, um, in the late 90s, well, early 2000s, you know, like that was the spot. That was the only place that had enough trim, really, that was keeping it high quality enough, wasn't in, you know, Morocco or wasn't in, um, you know, high desert. What was your interaction with Matt Rise at that time? Or was there any? Um, me and Matt Rise uh, first linked up when... I think, you know, I think it was probably in the forums and when Facebook or MySpace be, first became popular. Um, and uh, I saw him, you know, doing his thing and I was doing my thing. And I remember very specifically, there were there were few of us. There were very yeah. few of us doing this high quality of a of a product. And so I had to separate myself from not only, you know, those few, but really the people in my market because I was bringing hash to dispensaries in San Francisco and then eventually dispensaries in Colorado. And my, my water hash or my bubble hash didn't look like bubble hash anymore. It was starting to get more of that gold color and that BHO like consistency, whether it was earwax or honey oil, I started really trying to hone in my skills and my control, the variables to replicate that product. And, um, I, I remember specifically bringing hash to uh, my dispensary in uh, Colorado, Cherry Co. And the bud tender being like, this isn't bubble hash. And I'm like, yeah, no, I, I made it with water and ice. And she's like, I can't sell this as bubble hash. Look at all this other bubble hash I have on the shelf. Yours looks different. And that's when, you know, it, it clicked. I was like, okay, 
that day I went home with a crazy batch. I think it was like OG Sin or something possibly from Johnny, Dank by Pank, something possibly from even before that. Was this day. was this after your, your first trip out to Amsterdam, Nick? Yeah. Okay, so I just want to pause I'm that. sorry. I'll, I'll fuck no worries. No worries, bro. No worries. That's my job. Um, I, I want to, I want to talk about that first, that first trip. Cause I think that had like, you know, really huge ramifications and, and you kind of came home with a fire lit under you and, and, a, and a clear path forward. So can you talk to me a little bit about, was it you pushing for that trip or was it somebody else that was pushing you to go to Amsterdam? Oh, my first like main trip to Amsterdam for the weed thing. Um, it was me and my best friend, Eric, at the time, both of us had been talking about it for years and we were like, we got to get out there. Um, yeah. Yeah. And so once you were out there, you actually were able to connect with Mila. Can you, can you talk a little bit about, about that connection? Yeah. You know, um, the, the first time I went out there with Eric, we, we walked the coffee shops, we did the tourist thing. And I ran into a very small, I don't even think it was a coffee shop. It was more of a head shop, to be honest. Um, and it was, I, I believe it was in a, a similar area as like where Roar Glass was. I don't know if they okay. still are back in the day, DNA Genetics in that little yeah. neighborhood there. Yeah. And um, I go into this head shop and I fall in love with these mammoth tusk crutches, right? This is... 2001, 2001, 2002 area. And I fall in love with these mammoth tusk crutches. And I remember talking to the owner or uh, purveyor of this head shop. He's like, oh, if you're into these, you've got to go to Mila's shop. And I'm like, oh, I've heard that name, you know, quite a few times now. Can you point me in the right direction? Because multiple people had said, you got to meet Mila. You're really into hash. You have to meet Mila. And uh, he, this guy at the head shop, um, who knew Petey, I don't know if y'all know Petey, the uh, Mammoth Tusk Crutch guy, who later on, 20 years later, I've, I met Petey and now we're, we're friends, which nice. is a trip. But um, this head shop purveyor is like, oh, you, Mila has more of these tusks from Petey. You got to go check Mila. He shows me the direction. Back then, Mila had not only a warehouse where she sold and distributed her isolator bags and her pollinator machines, she had a little lounge and like almost an ode to hash makers and a little like history section, a little bookshelf with multiple like hash books and Moroccan pipes and, you know, all the accessories that us hash nerds freak out over, you know, still today. And, uh, yeah, she had this like little lounge area. And I remember really just picking her brain and she was very willing and just hung out with me out smoked me every single time. But I went to Mila's warehouse every single morning the entire time I was in Amsterdam that first trip for a week and a half. So like, I was there for like 10 days banging on her door every morning, I got my coffee or I would get coffee at Mila's and like, I just kept bugging her. I, I would take, I would sit six hours at a time without any of us moving, just spliff after spliff. Like, wait, so what do you do now? You do this rinsing stage. Wait, why do you do that? And I was that kid, you know, I want to talk about the rinsing. Cause I think, you know, that's something that every hash maker 
goes through or hasn't gone through yet to really understand the difference in quality of if I just pull my bags versus if I'm really giving them a thorough rinse. So can you talk about not only, you know, what Mila taught you there, but the the impact that it had on, on you going forward? Yeah. So before I met with Mila, we were pulling bags, humble <laughs> style is what I say. I just ta- got taught by probably one of my uncle's friends. I don't even remember who taught me initially. Um, really, you know, that time, late 90s, early 2000s, forums and the internet started blowing up. So I learned so much just in fullmeltbubble.com, Mark's forum. I learned Marcus, a ton yeah. even, even before fullmeltbubble.com in, um, you know, Roll It Up, Grass City, and yeah. the uh, the old, um, what was it? Um, uh, fuck, why am I spacing the name? the IC mag yeah IC mag and then it was another even before IC mag but um either way learning a ton in those forums getting kicked out of the forums you know I was getting kicked out of Mark's forum because in that time when butane was becoming popular and I was making this gold stuff because I was controlling the variables Mark thought that I was making butane and putting butane on his forum and he kept (laughs) kicking me out um so that was that was during that time as well um that's sorry what was the initial question boss the rinsing rinsing Rinsing. so i was i was pulling bags with like in a in a hot barn with dust around me and was not thinking about cleanliness until really visiting mila um i think we've made hash a couple times in uh in boulder yeah probably quite a few times in boulder colorado before i went to visit mila but i wasn't doing that rinsing step um and Mila's oral tradition, you know, is what I call it, because back then a lot of this stuff wasn't written down. She hadn't written her first book back then, you know, so I call it oral tradition that she passed down to me in saying that I should rinse. And I'm like, what do you mean rinse? I've already pulled it out of my water. You know, I've already collected. She's like, no, use a sprayer and rinse through. And I'm like, yeah, it still doesn't really make sense. She didn't explain why. You know, she just said, do it. And I'm like, okay, you know, so when I get back home, I'll try this rinsing thing. And I start taking, like, I had to set up an extra bucket and I'm like, why did all this extra work? And I start spraying through with just my hose. It was, uh, I think back then it was the, the backyard hose we were using. Um, and I was making hash in between my basement on the cement and the backyard. We were like spraying everything out in the backyard and, you know, doing the collection inside. And, uh, and still, you know, some of those first times I wasn't even concerned with the temperature um, that I was washing in or anything like that. It wasn't until like 2004 uh, that temperature really came into play for me. But um, yeah, I started rinsing with the with the hose. Like literally, this is street water or city water that I'm rinsing with a um, a garden hose, and we started taking some of the varieties that weren't that melty before and testing them on our spoon or on our knife with a with a lighter (laughs) thinking about it um and uh we were like holy fuck all of these ones that weren't melting that much before are now melting because of this rinsing thing needle was right so you know we really took that to heart and uh started spreading that rinsing tech through and through that was one of the ones that i was like i don't want to hold this i want everyone to know that if they rinse their hash they can make it melt because that was the big thing fmcd was the term for 
six star or whatever you want to call it. You know, what we call six star today, it was FMC, FMCD, which meant full melt yeah, clear dome. Yeah. You know, we were trying to get this hash to not only bubble on the top of our bowl or on our stainless steel screen or our titanium screen, we wanted to see it bubble clear and make these domes, right? And when we started rinsing, we were seeing a lot more FMCD in our lives. So thank you, Mila, once again, hash queen. Um, and once again, on Mother's Day, much love to the queen on Mother's Day. Fuck yeah. So, Nick was... was was it clear to you that this was your 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 chosen profession and this was what you were going to be put on the earth to do coming back from Miller or when did that when did that sense of knowing like you know this is this is my calling uh come come about as far as you know who you are today and, and what you clearly do well coming back from Amsterdam it definitely gave me some you know fuel and some more you know, knowledge in that realm. But back then, hash was for us. Hash was for the growers. Hash was for the hustlers. We really weren't making, you know, that much until I think 2007, 2008, where I, you know, really started doing it on a larger scale. But back then in the early 2000s, you know, hash and fmcd and the reason i was on the forums is because it was a small byproduct of what we were really doing we were hustling we were selling a lot of weed and this was our treat you know that's mm -hmm. that's what it was back then this was like our treat and so it wasn't about me teaching people too much back then it was a little about hoarding that tech back then and it was a little it was more about this is our treat after we've sold 100 packs I uh, I fully understand, you know, what you're saying. And, and I think, you know, my next question I want to ask is, you know, when you're trying to promote this new rinsed uh, earwax, so to speak, that, that is on the shelf with this other uh, bubble or, or water ash, you know, when did it come about that, when did you realize that you needed to come up with a different name to be able to properly market this product? Paul Token. Um, well, that that day, that day that the bud tender looked at me and said, and this is a bud tender at, you know, a dispensary that I worked very closely with. It was like my in-house dispensary. Um, and uh, she was like, this looks different than the bubble hash that we have on the shelf. Like, we can't sell this as bubble hash. And so I was like, but it is bubble hash. And I kind of got offended, you know, with the bud tender. Cause my initial response was, well, what the fuck am I supposed to call it then girl? Like <laughs> I got, I got, uh, you know, uh, frustrated. Um, I was like, it's just better, you know? And I was, you know, whatever I was honorary. I was, uh, um, it was a different day and age. We were showing off, we were flaunting, you know? Um, and, uh, I went back home with a really, really nice batch. I think it was either OG Sin or something from uh, one of the, the few dispensaries in Boulder that had popped up back then. I want to say Station. Um, what was it? What's the Deadhead song? Something Station. They got a dispensary. Terrapin. Terrapin Station. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, <laughs> sorry. Um, no, no disrespect there. My bad. Um, <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> 
Terrapin Station. I think it was either from Terrapin Station or from Johnny or from one of the friends from Rich, maybe, because Rich was one of the first guys, Ambesa Organic, who supplied Terrapin back then. So Terrapin was one of the first dispensaries to have like the Ghost OG and some of these, you know, unique varieties. But either way, it was a fire like OG diesel type of a batch. And it came out ridiculous, you know, see-through, translucent. It didn't look like bubble hash. It looked like snot. And uh, I took it home in a little plastic, like, medical container, like Nalgene-style container. That's what we used back then. And uh, took it back home. And I invited who I knew as the influencer in our space back then. And that was Paul Token. He was one of the first YouTube phenomenons that was out there talking about cannabis. And I invited him over. He was a friend as well. I invited him over. I'm like, bro, you got to check out this batch. This shit's nuts. It like melts to nothing. The blood tender told me it's not bubble hash. Like, what the fuck do we do? What do we call this? And uh, earwax was popular at that time. Butane earwax, butane honey oil. I think it went honey oil, then earwax. Um, or if we want to go further back, it went like ethanol, black oil, then, then honey oil, then earwax. And... I made something that like when I put my dabber in it, it had that same type of earwax like consistency. And Paul Token instantly is like, he, I think we take uh, either a hot knife of it or he puts it on top of his bong bowl and takes a rip with his uh, beeline or his hemp wick. Uh, one of the texts back then and it melts to nothing. And he's like, bro, this melted like the butane, like, what is this? And I'm like, it's my same stuff. It's just really good material. I got it fresher this time. And he's like, man, solventless wax. Paul Token's the first one to really say the term. Um, he's like, call this solventless wax. And I'm like, okay. And then I started, you know, in the weeks, months, years following, I started making different consistencies and different colors and shatter became popular and we started turning up the temperature and you know yada 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 and eventually i realized that solventless wax was too inhibiting because that earwax term was starting to grow you know and people were starting to make different consistencies and sugars and butters and batters and uh so I took that term that, you know, Paul Token had really coined, solventless wax, and I made it into more of a broad, encompassing term, solventless. And uh, that's really where it started, and that's where, uh, you know, where it grabbed a hold, you know. And in the beginning, I had the scientist being like, what are you talking about? You're using water. Water is a solvent. And I had, you know, the, the friends even, friends of mine, and naysayers and everyone being like, nah, man, this shit's just bubble hash. <laughs> and I'm like, well, I just got done with the bud tenor telling me it's not bubble hash and I don't know where to turn. And I was confused, man. I was getting hate from all angles, for real. Even Addison was hating. No, <laughs> it wasn't until later. <laughs> <laughs> so did you, ever, did you ever think that it was going to be as widely adopted as it is today? No. No, I, I was getting so much hate. I was like, well, then fuck y'all. Sorry if I'm swearing and we can't swear. I'm a oh, you can swear. You yeah. can swear. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Um, I'm like, well, then this is my word that I'm going to keep for myself to distinguish and differentiate my product from the rest of you fucks. 
<laughs> so that's what I did. And I was honorary about that term in the beginning. And I'm like, no, y'all can't use it. Y'all already hated on me. That's my word. I'm putting saltless. I'm putting saltless wax and saltless shatter on the shelf. And that's my word. And that's when you mentioned Matt Rise. I start seeing Matt Rise posting as well. But he was still calling it bubble hash, right? Or water hash. Mm-hmm. Um, or ice water, you know, extraction. And I was like, bro, you got to figure out another term for it. I'm using solventless wax. You should figure out something, you know, to differentiate yourself. Because in the beginning, you know, some of the homies were like, well, should we call our stuff solventless wax? You know, and I'm like, I wanted my friends to use that word to like kind of build this community or this little, you know, bit of outreach here. But I didn't really because I was still getting so much hate. So I was like, nah, man, you make up your own word. And so instantly Matt Rise was like, all right, ice wax. And I'm like, sick, bro, run it. And then that next year we collaborated and we had two different techs. He was microplaning and I was still sieving. And so we came together and we brought our different techs to his house in his kitchen. And we, we didn't enter a cannabis cup because we were still a little wary of high times at that point in time. This is the very first time high times came to the United States. And, um, We were like, you know what, let's just collaborate. And I think that this is still to this day, one of the very first collaborations of our industry. Me and Matt Rise collaborated to get, excuse me, together. And we just came to a booth. I think we just took over a section of uh, Sheldon Black and and Chuck from Verde, um, Mm -hmm. a section of their booth. And we just posted up and just gave away free dabs of the Nicotee Matt Rise collaboration. And uh, yeah, that's uh, where our relationship started. Later on, we had a little beef and, you know, box it well, up. I mean, but. everyone's had beef with Matt Rise. I mean, that's kind of, that's like a, a rite of passage in the solventless world. Is to, but we're cool. I respect what he did. You know, I don't respect yeah. some of the things he did too. So. Well, I mean, there's, there's a number of people that I think have uh, super, superseded their abilities in the, in the production or the separation by other shit and i think that that's just kind of you know it happens but i don't think it takes away from you know some of the i mean think of how many amazing things have come from people that were weird times in their life when they were kind of fuckheads or something you know so it's but you know i mean i i don't talk to matt i haven't talked to matt in a long time i don't even know where he is or what he's doing but um i remember at that time though he was producing a lot of really good hash and uh you know i was a bho guy and it was kind of um, you know, I remember everything you're talking about. I remember like actually that Verde booth and I remember that cup and yeah, that was, yeah. uh, those were good times, man. I think it was, it was like the birth of, uh, individuality, you know, like, like you're, like you had your term and you, and you have this new term that you come up with and you're, you're watching, you know, uh, Matt develop his stuff and create a, you know, have his own term. But at the same time, it, it is water hash. It's just a higher grade of water hash. It's a, it's a higher grade of separation. And we had different consistencies. Sorry. Yeah. We, we had different yep. consistencies too. So I wanted to distinguish that he was microplanting and I was sieving, but we didn't really even distinguish those terms back then. Now we, you yeah. know, have very clear, you know, terms for that process, but we were just creating more surface area as far as any of us were concerned. But the terms that separated the text were ice wax and solventless wax. Mm-hmm. Yep. No, that was a, uh... It's, I try to think about um, the time when that was happening and what was happening in glass and what was happening in, uh, 
and you know and dabbing at the same time like what was the what was the primary way of consuming back then because i remember it wasn't really dabbing it was like dabbing just smoking it with a b-wit yeah with like a, a wick and stuff right yep yep um you know we got these screens from mila actually and mila was getting these screens from india they were actually made in india it was this brass ring with a stainless steel basket screen and they fit into i have it. some of them right i've here. got a few left a few left <laughs> i, I sold them for mila up until like two years ago yeah. when i sold out yeah. completely and india stopped manufacturing them but um yeah. that was one of the ways you know, another way was the Moroccan pipe, of course, in Europe, in India, in Israel, in Morocco, in all other countries other than the United States, they were using chillums and they were using spliffs. Yep. There you go. Yep. Yep. Exactly. Cool. Yeah. Yep. So you know, in other parts of the world, other than the United States, they were using chillums and spliffs. Um, yep. And then even hookah colts was a big uh form of smoking high-end hash back then um, yeah i remember in india like you dropping know, we it down on the... and yep. of course then then was hot knives you know oh. and from hot knives we had the skillet i actually have i've got some glass cases behind me that have all the the, the history of this stuff there you go there you go um so i i've got you know we had the skillet thanks to yep. what hash master cut Right, yep, it was HMK, like the first yeah. cat to really bring dabbing into our world. So big up the people that came before us, each Good and every man. time. Um, and then from the skillet, there, you know, people made fancier skillets, and then there was like the bell, you know, where you would slide the skillet underneath the bell rather than having, yeah. you know, other uh, other forms there. And you know, you Addison, you know, you know, you know the deal here. This this all came from BHO, really is as like Hashmaster yep. Cut, Dan, Daniel Desai. Um, there was another leader in that in that movement out of LA. Um, but uh, yeah, that's well, where Trim really Trimlific out of uh, yeah. San Jose. Remember yeah. him? He was. Yeah. Oh yeah. I still talk to him. He's a good dude, man. Yeah, I ran into him a couple years ago. Um, I I now do so much consulting. I pull up on people's labs and shit, and they're like, "Oh, hey, we haven't seen you in 15 years, or we, you know, we haven't seen you since the forms." And it's like cats like that, Trimlific. Like I pulled up on a lab <laughs> where he was managing a lab, and I came in to consult on the solventless side probably five six years ago. Um, anyways uh yeah history history did you feel like you had a, a competitive advantage in seething because you learned directly from mila nick um i i wasn't thinking about that back then no um i was thinking more like i now have because by the time like it's matt rise era if you yeah. will I've now have over fucking 2,000, 3,000 runs under my belt. So that's where I had a competitive advantage. Mm -hmm. I had the advantage of being from Mendocino in Humboldt County, but I'm out here in Colorado. You know, that's, that's, the, that's purely the advantage. I just had more runs under my belt. And I really started to hone in the very specific tech of pulling out just enough moisture out of that patty before you sieve it compared to pulling out too much or not enough because that was the tech that's how i got my hash drier than all my friends if i pulled too much moisture or squeezed too hard on that patty from underneath the bag i had a fucking mess and i had hash all over that bag i lost yield to the bag and i had to clean it you know uh after the run and it took hours and yada 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 
if I didn't pull out enough moisture, I go to sieve it. Oh, and of course, when I pull out too much moisture, I go to sieve it and it starts bubble gumming on me is what I called it, where it just sticks to the sieve and you can't get it broken down properly. And if I didn't pull out enough moisture from that patty, I would push it through the sieve and it would kind of recongeal underneath the sieve. And, you know, the same type of thing they were having to deal with in uh, the microplaning world, not as much. And so I think I really got an advantage out there because people were now starting to microplane. There were some other techs out there, but I had really dialed in the sieving tech. The other people that were sieving weren't really doing it as properly. They weren't pulling out that extra moisture. And they go to dry it and you're getting a little bit of chlorophyll or musty smell to it, or you're pulling too early from the sheet pan drying racks into a jar because it looks translucent and cool. But then two days later, you got that mildewy smell. I started to identify things like that um, and really, you know, hone in on that quality. I think that's very cool, man. Like, I think that uh, that perspective at that time and like having been able to look at both of those processes and say, hey, you know, this is this is where, where I'm going to stand. I think that's very cool. What people don't realize is that as you were going through this, they're, they didn't have the internet and a nick of tea or any of these other things to give them that information. YouTube wasn't blown up now like it is. So there, and, and then never mind too, there wasn't a Whistler tech. There wasn't a brute. There wasn't the, any of these big there companies. No peer making, pressure. No yep. peer pressure. None of these companies making these larger vessels to be able to do this stuff. So in terms of like scaling and production, you're right. Like you said before, it, it was like our, our treat. You know, and then even it turned into like in the BHO world, it turned into like when you came across some some Cuban or some of your stuff or some of this stuff that was just fucking beyond this world, like worldly separated. It did have that same sort of flow, that same sort of, you know, uh, level of quality uh, in terms of no particulate, no waste in it that you guys got to. You guys reached this pinnacle point where it was like you were separating and it looked identical to BHO and it felt like it, you know, it didn't taste like it, but at the same time, it definitely had the only way you could tell the difference. And I, and I love that this happened, but the only way that you could tell the difference was on the nail, you know, and, and it's even that way now where some people will show me some stuff and you're like, well, let's, let's put it on the nail and let's see. And so, yeah, I, no, it was a great time. I think a big part about that too. And the nail thing that you mentioned is not only just tasting that char that we can get into if we want, but the smell coming off the nail going into yep. your nose as you inhale something that might taste amazing. You're also getting the smell of that burnt in your nose, which affects the whole experience. But that's how we learn too, though. Yeah. If you think about it, 100%. the way you eliminate oh, the way you eliminate that problem is you lower the temp that you're dabbing at, and now you don't have that. Now you're like, oh, and. And like these, you know, I got this Peli nail on my desk uh, here. And it's like, I could, everything I'm hitting, it's like if I'm hitting solventless or, or if just straight melt, you know, I'll lower it down and raise it back up because that's, the, that's what we learned too. And, you know, with the nail, even yeah. with all the equipment, you know? Yeah. No. And then we came out with uh, the titanium screen so that right before you hit that char mark, you pull the screen off with your... Uh, yep your gator clips or whatever it may be, you pull it off. So you're not getting that in your nose and you're not tasting it, you know, and that, yeah. that was all tech and uh, you know, yeah. Stuff that came before rosin trying to get the cleanest tasting full melt we could. Nick, what did, what did you mean by tasting the char? Can you expand on that a little bit? Yeah. So 
water hash, in essence, contains the waxy cuticle that protects the trichome head. And in a hydrocarbon extraction or a, a solvent-based extraction, you're actually extruding the oils from within that trichome head, whereas a mechanical separation or a solventless separation or extraction, we're actually removing that trichome head as a whole that trichome head still contains that waxy cuticle. So in water hash or in solventless wax, as we were calling it back then, or ice wax or mechanically separated trichome heads, um, we notice a little bit of a, a char. Now you're going to get those very few strains in that super extreme clean separation or you get very, very little of that char taste or smell or visual on the nail, in the bucket, on the skillet, um, whatever it may be. But we wanted to find a way to remove that waxy cuticle. And so before rosin, before we realized that that was an option, <coughs> Addison was saying we use techniques like lowering the temperature on the e-nail or lowering temperature that we are dabbing at. And then eventually Fletcher really is the one that kicked my attention onto the screens. So big up Fletcher from Archive. Fletcher's also the first guy that had the balls Killer. to play with a harvest right, play with a freeze dryer in our space. Once mm -hmm. he first played with the harvest right, I'm getting ahead of myself. I'll get into that. Um, I, I will get into that though. Remind me. Yeah, absolutely. But yeah, as far as the screen tech goes, he, you know, he came up with this idea and I mass produced it. You know, I hit up, uh, Aqualab technologies at first. I'm like, yo, how do we work together? Cause he was the main source of equipment and ancillary needs in our world. He was the guy with the three whole bowls, Jeff, big up Jeff. Yep. Yep. He was the guy with all the, the new tools that we needed. And uh, so I, I hit up Jeff and he's like, oh, I, I don't want to even think about it. I got too much on my plate. Hit up my, man, my uh, titanium manufacturer. So I hit him up, started working with him and produced these, what I ended up calling the essential TI screen. And then the essential holy TI screen, which had a hole in the center for the center post uh, style e-nails. And uh, the idea behind that was we could put our full melt um, or FMCD along the ring of that or on top of that screen. And right before it got to that char step where it would burn through that waxy cuticle and you get an unpleasant odor, sometimes, yeah, a charring or sometimes even a plasticky like odor, waxes, plant waxes. Before you get to that stage, you'd remove it. So you'd have nothing but a good clean rip. Of course, later on, you know, we wanted to hone in that. And really, that's where rosin came into play. And uh, I, I want to stop you. I want to stop you there because we're, we're going to get to rosin. But I, I, I want I think I want to go back and I think I'm correcting going back. I want to talk about your relationship with Pink House and the work that you did okay. there. Is that is that Elliot, timeline wise? That works. Yeah. Is that timeline wise? Uh -huh. correct? Yep. Pink House awesome. is pre rosin. Awesome. Yep. Let's go. We, if we're talking about Pink House. That was the time when Steep Hill was working with Elliot. And that was when, you know, that's when I first seen your lab and actually got to kind of like get to know you a little bit better was at that point. So, yeah. Definitely, definitely. Yeah. Steep Hill days for sure. Um, but I guess even pre Steep Hill days, pre um, 
Pre-Pink House, I'm going to back it up because this leads into Pink House. We had one of the first dispensaries in Denver um, right off the freeway and uh, in like low high neighborhood, like right five minutes away from downtown. What was the name? It was called Highland Health. Um, even before Highland Health, I was running a dispensary, which was one of the first dispensaries called Treeline Premier, and that was up in Avon, Colorado, near Vail. Um, but Highland Health, we'll start with Highland Health. Highland Health was one of the first dispensaries in Denver to have more than one OG Kush. So I'm a California boy. And I grew up with the LA dispensaries and the Bay Area dispensaries. And I was working with them in the 215 days where we had 20 different varieties of OG Kush, clone only OG Kush. And most of them were the same, just renamed for whatever was popular that week <laughs> in reality, you know. Um, but that was like a big thing for me. OG Kush was the flower that we all sought after and Colorado really didn't have a lot. So it started with uh, DNA genetics, OG 18, because nobody would give me a clone only back then, you know, it was kind of controlled by the Russian dispensaries and the farmers um, in LA. And I wanted that OG Kush. I wanted to grow it. I wanted it on my shelves in Colorado because I experienced it first with uh, I believe it was with uh, my roommate, Greg, who's now like still my best friend and breeder. Um, we found this phenotype of OG 18 from seed because we were popping all the OGs from seed, Cali Connection, DNA Genetics, anybody that we could find that had like real clone OGs that they were producing in seed form. And uh, we found this OG 18. And then soon after I started you know, bringing a bunch of OGs from California to the shelves in Colorado, because this is before regulation in Colorado. This is when dispensaries first started popping up and uh, nobody was watching what we were doing across state lines yet. Of course, it was always federally illegal and still is today, uh, but we were doing that. And uh, I don't know started, what you're talking about. Then we started growing <laughs> some OGs in Colorado and, uh, you know, big up man like Dan Barnett, big up man like chuck from verde big up man like scott rare dankness rich ambesa fletcher archive Seabank, because these were some of the first cats that were really bringing og to the table not only in colorado but throughout the world let me ask you about the the ogs why were you going from seed were you not able to through your various networks access a cut at that point or did you want something your own or, or what was the thinking there both you know we weren't able to access clone only cuts at that point i was no. trying to get them from you know from the people you know um but um at that point early early on og18 was like the epitome of something i could find from seed that replicated pretty closely the flavor it didn't really have the structure it had a little bit more of that chem structure to it but it, it replicated a flavor that i was looking for mm -hmm. it wasn't until johnny OG genetics came into my life and seeing that we, I was all about the OGs because I was carrying them on the shelf at Highland Health to get back into the, the Highland Health conversation. Um, I was managing, bud tending, making some hash in the back type of uh, work for Highland Health and uh, really bringing in, you know, that was just an excuse for me being a driver and I was bringing in a lot of my connections from Humboldt, Bay Area, LA, bringing in that, that weed um itself onto the shelf like directly i wasn't like 
bringing the cut or bringing the seeds. I was actually bringing the weed. Um, and, uh, so we had multiple OGs on the shelf at Highland and we wanted to start growing them in house. Cause back then we could grow in our house and sell to our dispensary and get it to the consumer. It was a very short amount of time that that was happening in Colorado, but it was happening. Um, and, uh, Johnny, OG Genetics, brought me the planetary OGs. He brought me cuts from Oaksterdam, the Oaksterdam OG, the um, Wally OG, the Phantom OG, the Black Ice OG, the Mars, the Jupiter, the Harawana OG. And mm. this is really what you know started getting our dispensaries popping off. So I was at Highland Health and I was bringing these in eventually highland health became pink house uh highland health became the cherry co became pink house and became this you know monster um because at one point in time i think we had 12 retail locations and we were one of the largest uh you know multi-faceted operators in the space we started doing the lab thing built out uh a hydrocarbon lab but even before regulation it was more blasting in the back of the lab and bringing it in to uh purge it inside um and then you know of course scaled up from there getting in closed loops um steven lewis brought in his quizo tech to pink house around the same time quick ethanol wash and uh was one of the you know the first high quality products uh that people were dabbing other than this uh butane and other than the solventless wax and other than the ice wax this was before co2 maybe around the same time but it was higher quality than the co2 that we were making back then big up stephen lewis each and every time and that, and that was when the clinic the clinic was pumping pretty hard back then like nelson i remember yep with the earwax and all that yep. stuff and that big was up nelson and, then, and, and you know funny enough i work with the clinic today um nice i do nice. uh some consulting for juicy over there on the east coast so oh cool uh, no, yeah. that's awesome. Yeah, family still, family still. You know what's funny is I've known Ryan since he was like fucking sixteen years old, when he was just a young boy. He used to sell weed uh, for me over in uh, Boulder when I lived in Boulder there. So I, I met him and we lived at this crazy house and he would come and then I went to Amsterdam years later and I'm with Don and Aaron and fucking I see Ryan. And he's with Drew and Max and uh, and it was like they were like, "What are you doing here?" And I'm like, "Oh, I you know I work with Don and Aaron. We're friends." And and then I ended up going. I actually was a part of uh, helping bring the kosher and Don and Aaron into clinic, into that whole deal they had in Colorado there. So all right, um, all right. Yeah, that, that's another deal that I wish I got paid for. But you know, <laughs> oh yeah, you don't get sometimes. Sometimes those things happen. But then you could look back on it and and be like, "Yeah, I remember that." But that was Nelson was. Uh, Nelson was definitely like one of the top makers at that time for BHO stuff. And I remember uh, that year, it was like a year, a couple of years after Nelson got there, a couple of years after what we're talking about. And the whole clinic crew went to Amsterdam and yep. they brought like, they may or may not have brought like kilos of fucking BHO. And it just, dude, we're all running through Amsterdam with torches and rigs. And, and at the time, like BHO is like heroin. It's completely fucking yeah, illegal. Super banned. Considered, considered like contraband. Like you could have hash, you could have this. Yep. If you had BHO, it was insane. That 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 high times cup was one of the most fucking insane cups I've with Jason 
from Montana. Oh yeah. Oh <laughs> yeah. Elemental seeds crew and all oh, yeah. that. Jesus Christ. Wyland. Those are good times. Wyland. Um, yeah. Good Lord. Yeah. 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 There's Great. good reason we didn't, I, I, I don't, I don't understand how they would let us go to that city and fucking rage as hard as we would and then leave. But I guess it is kind of like the Vegas of Europe. So, um, but man, big, big love for Amsterdam for letting us, get up in there and fucking break laws and bring crime to the streets in the way that we did. So that was, uh, <laughs> look at how much came back from that time. I mean, what a, this, this podcast for me is a great opportunity to kind of just recollect with, with a lot of the, a lot of you guys about those times, like that period of time. I can't wait to get like Don and Aaron on here because it does fit into this whole, yeah. you know, that, that was like the, the roaring whatever's. You know, like that period. Those are good time, times. But. That was the duffel so, bag days. That was yeah. Oh yeah. When you guys had twelve locations, Pink House was banging. It was it was top of the world kind of a situation. Uh, what what was the transition from there into the into the next? Like what was what kind of happened after that point? Uh, and and you ended up obviously coming back to California and going back and forth. But what what was that like then? Um, yeah, I mean, I got uh, I got fucked over pretty good from the Pink House situation, but. That's really what I pride myself on is my ability to pivot and move on and move forward. And that's really what this industry is about. Because if you weren't able to pivot and move on, move forward, you wouldn't be here still today. And there's a lot of us and a lot of my peers from back then that are not here today. Yep. Um, and a lot of people try and step in today. And that's the reason we get so honorary about this situation is it's not been an easy road. You know, um, I'm glad to still be here doing what I love and promoting what I love and teaching what I love. But that's the pivot role that I've done now. You know, today I, I'm a teacher. You know, I don't think uh, <laughs> I don't think you know you'd be you'd be a real cannabis man if you if you hadn't gotten you know really screwed over in the legal space at least twice. Uh, oh, and uh, you know, I, I know I know it's happened to all of us on screen and and probably a lot a lot of the people tuning in. But before we move on from Pink House, I think you did some really interesting work there specifically with the Skywalker. And I'd love for you to share that story before we kind of close this chapter up. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Um, so uh, Addison had mentioned Elliot. Elliot was my partner, you know, over there. And uh, really, you know, the main owner. There was finance guys funding the situation. There was family members. Um, and there were people like me that kind of did more of a licensing deal before I really understood the term, if you will. Um, and uh, I was still kind of by pink house days. I was still like in between like wanting to start my own entity, which I had and I contacted the IRS, but still like not quite understanding the role and the whole licensing structure. So, you know, I wanted to get under somebody else's license. I, I didn't want to go out into that, that world, that mm -hmm. regulatory world, if you will. I was already in it and, and established in it, but I wanted to come under somebody's wing. So that's what Pink House was. Um, and, uh, so I hit up Elliot one day, you know, the guys in the garden were like, yo, this whole row of this Skywalker plant that you brought in, I brought it in, um, is Herman at day 50. Like, what do we do with it? 
And uh, this was before Skywalker OG. This was the Mazar times Sharif Skywalker, right? Mm -hmm. If anybody's aware or remembers from back then. Um, it had a very DMT-like smell. So today's GMO mixed with blueberry. That's what Skywalker was, right? So it actually did okay for us in numbers. I think something with that DMT terpene attributes to yield um, mm -hmm. and THC potency. It's like this crazy weird degradation that only happens when you see a certain number. Um, that's what that terpene represents. And it's not just a terpene, it's like feel, yeah, it's flavonoids, flavonoids. some other things yeah. in there for sure. Um, and uh, so stinky ass fucking plants, we've got probably 60 of them in a row and they're Herman. And so they call Elliot and Elliot's like, well, cut them, cut them down, get them out of here. And I'm like, well, can I use them for R&D? And he's like, sure, do whatever you want. Just get them out, get them cut. So we go in there and we start cutting them. But literally, this is like all on like hearsay of things that I had heard, you know, and and people talking shit to me online, like Joseph Pietri. I, I give a lot of credit to Joseph Pietri. He calls himself the king of Nepal. Um, I don't know if people in Nepal would call him the king of Nepal, but either way, um, Joseph Pietri was out there talking shit. He, he was one of those guys thinking I was making BHO and he was really, you know, an advocate for water hash, but he was just directing his anger at the wrong dude. I was one of those dudes, but I took yeah. his anger and I pivoted with it. He yelled at me, oh, you don't make hash. I make live hash. And I'm like, hmm. And that's also one of the things that like got us to this experiment here well we've got plants herman at day 50 i'm allowed to play with them let's fucking run them live and so we took those plants and we chopped them at the roots some of them we even just ripped up with the roots intact flipped them upside down and manually spun them in our ice water bucket we had a 55 <laughs> gallon drum and big up man like steven lewis big up gal like angela who was out there helping me because this was my idea with the okay from the boss, but I needed some help. So I brought in Steven. I brought in Angela. I think Angela was like our massage therapist. I think Steven at that time was like helping him in the garden. Um, I don't know if he had even started doing the Quizo yet at that point in time, to be completely honest. And uh, anyways, yeah, we just went at it and started hitting these in the ice water bucket and then eventually like pouring and collecting and collecting something that was so difficult to remove from the bags and get off the spoon and break down like this was something we couldn't sieve at all it was way too sticky to want to push through a sieve the first little chunk i tried it just turned into bubble gum you know spread out through the sieve and never pushed anything through i'm like well we gotta handle this one differently so we end up putting it in parchment paper envelopes inside thick ziploc bags freezing it taking it out two hours later, smashing it with the hammer, putting it back in the freezer, taking it out, smashing it with the hammer, putting it back in the freezer until it got solid again and doing that over and over until we broke it up fine enough to actually dry it properly. When we went to dry something like that, because we broke all the heads and we created the surface area we're looking for, it dried as like pure see-through gold oil. And we're like, okay, well, we've got something here with the color and the consistency, but how the hell are we going to break it down properly? We definitely trapped water and we definitely couldn't get it off of our bags and ruin the set of bags. And, uh, 
that's when Fresh Frozen came into play. That's really where that was developed. It's my need to take something to want to recreate that color and that consistency, but with the ease of stability via Fresh Frozen. So we started freezing that material. Um, and then I think very soon after that, we went to Amsterdam for a cup and I started like yelling and shouting it at the top of my lungs. Like, yo, this is what we're doing. And I had, you know, I was turning heads like Mila you know, who was like, well, we've never done that before in Amsterdam. We've never fresh froze material. What are you doing over that sorcery? So I'm always giving her, you know, like even just, you know, uh, we had a little speech in uh, Barcelona or in Canary Islands, Canary Islands, just like three weeks ago, um, where I was telling kind of this story of Mila teaching me the rinse tech and Mila like butts in and she's like, but you taught us about fresh frozen. It's, it's a trip, you know? That's um, crazy. So it was, it was solventless guys that did fresh frozen before solvent guys. Yeah. Cause I really walked in on uh, giddy up kind bill and those boys doing like freezing their columns. Right. And I'm like, well, why don't you freeze the material like we're doing? And that shot off the light bulb. And that year they went and swept fucking Amsterdam too. The double froze. Yep. Yep. And that's when, uh, that's when they created the term live resin, which came before live rosin. It did come mm-hmm. before live rosin. But yeah. Big up, giddy up, kind bill, rye Pritchard. They were all the heads on that one. Yeah. I, I, I see giddy down in Oklahoma and he seems like he's, uh, they shifted from, it looked like from doing, um, you know, big dispensary sort of play more into like the grow play now. <laughs> so I think he's actually, I was just talking to him a little while ago and he was talking about like getting excited to get back into the grow and kind of fuck around that way. So, yeah, we, um, I, I saw him briefly, but I was DJing and he came up to the DJ booth and you, there's only so much conversation we can have. I hadn't seen him in a minute. I know that he's working, uh, with, uh, our buddy Ryan on a new project. Um, yeah, I, they tried to involve me, but I just have too many projects right now, to be completely honest. Like, I've got so many consulting gigs. Um, it's good. That uh, it's, yeah, it's just taking my time and it's been worth it. You getting paid in Bitcoin or what are you doing over there? Uh, sometimes. <laughs> That's good. Every once in a while, you're on the road internationally and like you, you don't really want to travel with that much cash. You know, after no. I've hit a few licks internationally, yeah, Bitcoin for sure. Fuck yeah. That's, <laughs> that's, that's, that's such an interesting thing too, to Ethereum. see. Or, or, or crypto. I mean, I'm, I'm getting NFTs for some of these gigs, which is kind of cool. Depends on what the NFT is. They give you an ape. That's the whole fucking story right there. That's- no, for sure. But I mean, I, I, I like to take the cash and the NFT just so I've got a little security with that one, but I dig it. I'll take all your NFTs for sure. Well, let me, let me know when you're ready and we could do some nicotine NFTs on some stuff that we're working on. So we could definitely, create some shit with you um we're doing some web3 stuff kevin shout out to kev kevin muse the great the great yeah. and powerful so yeah no let me know when you're ready we could uh we could definitely fuck around there but that's cool that you're that's kind of cool that you could see that uh you know that you got a wallet and you and you're filling that thing yep. up that way but then it sounds like if you have a lot of consulting gigs you must definitely be uh, in a different space than what you were talking about earlier when you were younger and getting fucked over by Elliot and all these things. So when did, when do you think that, because uh, it sounds like a lot of it's changing in the story now that you're kind of, you know, developing your own stuff. Was this when essential extracts came to life? Is, is this kind of the birth of essential when you left uh, over there with, with uh, Elliot or did essential start at Elliot spot at pink house? 
um, Essential actually started right before Elliot. Um, okay. Essential really was birthed in my transition moving from Vail down to Denver, from Treeline to Denver. And I needed, you know, a, a label for the product that I was putting on the shelves with Elliot. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, then forward moving from there. Um, and really, it was one of the first branded products. People were scared to brand their shit. Oh, yeah. You know? up until like the first couple brands hit you know top shelf extracts essential extracts and i don't know one other was was some others yeah no that's cool man i i know that that's something we haven't really talked about yet is essential and and that brand uh and 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 that's kind of like the moniker that i think you've carried for so long was essential that was kind of like what was attached to you and what what everyone sort of knew, knew you as was essential extracts um what's what's the the what is the what's the the format of essential now is it still a brand and is that with Rosentech? like what are you doing now with that yeah so um essential extracts after you know dodging a few and getting myself involved in a few lawsuits i won and global settlements and took back 100% of the name because Essential Extracts has always been me, 100% me, self-funded from day one. It wasn't until 2014, 2015, I decided to bring on my first partners at Essential um, and bring in some funding and some larger facilities. Um, Unfortunately, it didn't fully work out. And uh, I took back 100% of Essential. And since that day, I have owned 100% of Essential Extracts. I have one partner, business advisor and attorney and best friend. And uh, we kind of move forward together. He's not on paper, but he receives a percentage on the back end. Uh, It's just smoother moving forward. It's one person to talk to, one person to make all the calls. And... uh, I don't have a seven person staff or a 37 person staff anymore. I have zero people on my payroll. Um, I have zero company debt and we are operational right now in uh, in California, in Missouri, and uh, soon to be some other states. So we're awesome. operational right now in California. I saw California as a place where I needed to stay relevant. And initially in 2015, 2016, I started building a facility in Richmond unfortunately those partners fell off um and uh so that situation just kind of pittered and i kept moving and uh started doing some um i'd say synergistic licensing plays and some of them started as consulting some of them started as collaborative efforts and uh moving forward Right now, I have two that are active in the state of California, um, one being the Rosin Tech deal, and we have uh, some products on the shelves right now in California. Mm-hmm. Nice. That's awesome, man. Any, anything in Colorado? or Right at this time, no. Um, as I prefaced, I kind of got screwed over a little bit here in Colorado. We were active on 200-plus shelves in Colorado. Um, we were operational from 2010 until 2019, basically 18, 19. Um, and, uh, I have a few plays that I'm working on for Colorado. Colorado has been a nice, like break for me to not have something constantly moving. So I own a house here. I've got my son out here full time and, uh, I've, uh, I've utilized Colorado as a, a nice home base. I got a little media 
office here and even working on an R&D lab and, and center, training center. Um, but yeah, um, Colorado has been an interesting market as well. And uh, really, you know, I'm, I'm happy to stay relevant in these markets so that when we come back to uh, play in Colorado, I still have a lot of those connections. So one thing uh, I, I kind of want to pivot and change gears a little bit and talk about rosin, where I cut you off um, from before. So was it Soil Grown's video that you first saw this tech, or, or were you privy to this before, much, much before that? Yeah, no, it was much before. It was actually back in, like, it was somewhere between 2005 and 2010, and it was on – fullmeltbubble.com it was on marcus's uh uh forum that this gentleman by the name of compassion com compassion like so compassion but with hash in there um he also goes by chadwick bastardo on facebook send him some love after i tell you this little story here you might want to um chadwick bastardo aka compassion was the first guy to make a post and call a product rosin r-o-s-i-n now he was doing something very crude very rudimentary compared to what we're doing today but he is the guy that utilized the term that existed in our world but utilized it for a cannabis concentrate um being a mechanical separation utilizing heat as well he was taking a stainless steel bowl and a stainless steel spoon and he was heating up that stainless steel bowl and stainless steel spoon and plopping a chunk of full melt in the center there using a spoon and smearing with some force onto that bubble hash and what he was noticing is this ring separating on the outside of his hash and it was an oil ring an oily a terpene rich oil ring and he back then it was knife hits um and screens right and he was putting it on his knife or on his screen actually it was a screen putting it on his screen and it was melting through the screen and calling it rosin but getting back to hash was for the cultivator hash was for the head rosin back then from 2005 until 2015 was only for the hash maker you got to keep that little bit that one dab that one screen rip of rosin right and then soil ground came along and for me i always have described it as he pushed the boundaries of what i thought was possible he scaled up the idea of rosin right by pressing flowers and creating that same ring of oil on the outside of the flower that we were seeing in chadwick bastardo's photos back in 2005 but on a more scalable level so i hailed up phil and i'm like yo bro you scaled rosin big up right but when i brought phil into the history of rosin part one and part two which is on youtube as well we did a live presentation of it and it was live so i didn't know exactly what we were getting into i just know i wanted to give him credit um i brought ben previously of rosin tech to that platform as well and we did a history of rosin <clears throat> and soil groans on stage being like nah man like i was watching your guys use hair straighteners with parchment paper to flatten out your flags and that's what gave me the idea to use it on a flower and so he was trying to pass the credit back i'm still gonna say to this day that soil grown is the one who scaled rosin period 
flower who was the first it. who was the first person to start using bags to press Ooh, ooh, that's a good one. That's a great question because with flower rosin, like, you didn't really need it. But then people started using it, and that's what really kind of – yeah, it was one of the things that triggered hash rosin or live rosin yep. for sure. Um, was it rosin tech? Who, who, who made those first bags? Because I can't – I almost can't even remember because it was No, we didn't use bags. We were taking all of our old bags, all my old essential bags, and cutting squares. You know, that's okay. what came before manufacturers made them. It was, uh, I think, the first people to actually put them out there. Big up Hefe, big up Jeff. Aqualab Technologies was one yep. of the first to always replicate what the kids were doing on the street and put it on his website. And then he created uh, Rosin Technologies, not Rosin Tech, but Rosin Technologies was Jeff's, um, you know, first Chinese rebranded rosin company. I'm not trying to mm -hmm. diss it. It's just what they were back then. Yeah. 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 Well, it was what was available at the time. Yeah. Kind of, you know. But look at Dino. That's Dino came first, actually, before. Yep. Dino was the first. Yeah. No, we got a T-shirt press. <laughs> well, if you look at it now and you see, uh, you know, how it's it's almost as if uh, the technology needs to uh, catch up to melt for travel, for transport, for other stuff. I've, you know, uh, Seven Ten sent me this little mini freezer that's portable, that plugs in, that sits on your desk and you could pull a plug oh, yeah. out of it and just take it with you. Uh, I mean, it's, it's just that for me, I mean, I love melt, you know, it's like, and I've kind of, you know, Sundays are like the day for fucking melt. We just smoke a shitload of melt. It's kind of bled into the rest of the days. Now it's like in the morning before I walk the dogs to take a fat ass melt rip or something, but it's, it's almost, there's a barrier for travel and transport and shareability with melt that's not there with rosin and that utility purpose, you know, that ability to take rosin anywhere. And, and even just with the tech within rosin production, some guys with the wet tech, some guys with, you know, different, and then the consistency that it'll keep and how fast it degrades and how quickly it breaks down. And even the jars, the new jars now that you see, like some of the Calyx containers, uh, some of these new, these companies that are making these great jars with the, with the, the, what is it? The PF film on the top and the fucking shout out yeah. Alchemy jars. Oh, yep. I need to shout see these. Send me a link. Beautiful. Some of these guys send I'll me a link. I haven't heard of these ones yet. I'll get you some. Um, yeah. And I mean, the, the Miron jars have been around since day one. And I love that Correct. we've kind of gone back to that. There's some hate with the cobalt and being slave mind and shit, but I, I like the Miron jars. Oh, I haven't heard that yet. That's kind of cool, actually. I mean, are, are they messaging this to one another on their slave mind phones or is this, are they doing this by smoke signals? I'm not sure. I don't know. So, so much, so much to unpack here. I want to, I want to first talk about, cause, cause Addison touched on it, the rosin versus melt discussion and where you fall there, Nick, as far as a, you know, first and foremost, do you have a preference? Are, are you, are you, do you clearly dip on one side or the other? Um, first and foremost, oh, all right, so we're answering that part now. Yeah, go over that. Um, no, I, I don't, I, I like some products in hash form and some in rosin form. Um, when it comes to my spliffs, I almost all the time prefer in its raw form hash before it's been rosined. In dabs, I almost always prefer rosin dabs but there's very specific strains and and qualities that i would definitely dab over rosin it's just 
you know, I don't, I don't have them here at all times. And then they do degrade, of course, as we discussed. Mm-hmm. Um, would yeah. you agree? Would you agree with the statement that there's a more medical or, or stronger effect that that can be associated with um, loose resin versus rosin? No, you know, um, I think a lot of where this whole entourage effect term even comes into play is from lack of knowledge of which specific cannabinoids play a role in interacting with with specific terpenes. We've used entourage effect to really envelope or encompass everything that we don't know, you know, so yes, there's going to be oftentimes more of a broad spectrum type high or, you know, uh associated with raw loose heads compared to rosin uh because you know you're moving some of that around or or withholding some of that um but i don't think that's always the case and uh so that's a tough question that really is a tough question i'm gonna refer to addison demora previously of steep hill labs yeah I, i think uh entourage effect is technically people trying to explain how the you know the active compounds are affecting their receptors right and whether it's the terpenes you know some people want to say like oh entourage effect is when the terpenes hit you first and then they prime the receptor and then that helps dictate the type of high that you're going to have right that's more and of that's like terpenes modulating the high i don't think that has to do with the entourage well look at it this way this is how i've always defended that that statement if you take a hundred strains of cannabis right and you analyze 100 strains of cannabis and you look at them, the difference, they're going to different, they're going to be more different in their terpene profiles than in their active compound profile. So they're all most, they're all going to have THC. They're all going to have CBD. They're all going to have CBN. They're going to have some CBG. They're, you know, they're going to have these things, right? But what's going to be a broader profile is the terpene profiles in all hundred of those. So we all know that if you smoked a hundred strains, you know, maybe a hundred days in a row and you tried to, uh, you know, document what the high was like, the difference in all of them really is the terpene profile and not necessarily the cannabinoid profile. So if that's the case, then, then I, I feel that it backs up that theory that the entourage effect is real because we are drawn to certain strains for a reason. And it's probably that terpene profile because that terpene profile is what gives us this high that we're looking for that suits us best. Because what people don't realize is the, the, what's, what's gonna have more of a factor on how high you get is, is what you ate before or if you ate before compared to even what strain you're fucking consuming. Or, or if you slept the night before, how much, you know, how much water you've been drinking. Those things are all gonna have an effect on, on how high you get from smoking something. So if, I think if people standardized every bit of the consumption, then what you would see is that that terpene and that terpene profile is what's causing the different effect. I think that's that's has to be what it is because that's the only variable in those hundred strains is that terpene profile. Slightly. Well, so, I think that there's there's variable nature to the specific strains and the ratios of cannabinoids for sure. Um, so I think that those ratios of cannabinoids and some not being present, some having you know, other cannabinoids that are present, um, 
definitely interacting with those modulating terpenes, which help direct that feeling, you know, or that, uh, yeah. I think that's, that's huge. But I think as we define which specific cannabinoids and which specific terpenes are modulating that feeling, of course, everyone has different receptor sites, but I think that that's really the future of what, you know, research is going to develop and what we're going to be coming into is those specific relationships. And I think that term entourage effect is going to be less pertinent or less valuable because we're going to specify what really is happening within that entourage effect. So you know, one, one more thing, sorry, just to, just to kind of uh, cap this. I, I also think too, that when you look at aromatherapy and you look at the connection between how something smells and how it makes you feel, right? That has a lot to do with this because if you, you know, for me, like I, I figured it out as I grew, as I got older, I think I loved OGs so much because when I was a kid, I grew up around Mr. Clean. Like my, my mom would like clean the floor with Mr. Clean and then I'd fucking play. And I love that smell of Mr. Clean. I was always like, oh, it's the best fucking. I always associated it with like freshness and, and a clean floor and like all these different things. And I'd like fucking get out of the shower and I'd be like, wow, and I'd fucking rage. And I love that profile. I love that like Mr. Clean, like you were talking about the, the planetary OGs. They all had that really fucking heavy, like, what the fuck am I smelling here kind of a thing. And, and I, for me, OGs and that gassy stuff, it gets me way higher. I love it way more. So I, I, I kind of think that when it does come to it, the aromatherapy itself backs up that theory because you would never walk into a spa and fucking, you know, if a spa smelt like burnt rubber, you couldn't enjoy yourself in the fucking spa, right? And if they were playing death metal, you definitely, you're like, this is a fucking weird spa, right? You're not going to be able to relax technically. So that environment that's, that's kind of connected to it, I think. Aromatherapy is very powerful shit, man. It makes a huge difference. And when, when I see people smelling weed and they're like, or hash, as soon as they smell it and you look in their eyes and they're, they're like that, that reaction because they're so connected to, to scent and what scent is. And I think that that's why I've always kind of pushed that, that I do think entourage is real. I think that it's connected to obviously the combinate or the, you know, the ratio between cannabinoids, uh, the cannabinoids themselves, but also esters, flavonoids, and terpenes, which make up that whole flavor smell uh, component of what we experience. And, and it's, you know, there's certain, there's certain strains of weed that people give me or hash that people give me, even the mention of that hash or that strain. If someone's like, I have three strains in my hand, the mention of that one, I'm like, go fuck yourself. It turns yep. everything off in my head. Yep. And it's because of that experience with that flavor, that, that taste. Terpenaline for me, anything associated yeah, with There's always one of them. There's always one um, of them for everybody, you know? So that, that's, that's my, my argument. That's kind of why I think that no, aromatherapy is a great I'm not discounting entourage effect. I'm not discounting yep. the, the term at all. I think that it's an umbrella term, though, and I think that we're going to yep. be able to further define what it actually entails specifically I for so. each individual and, and our uh, specific receptor sites. So I have a question for you. Jameson, do you look like you're going to go? Do you no, go for it. I have a question for you and you might've already answered it because when you talked about that first uh, fresh frozen run that you did, but is there an actual run that you can remember that that was your good Lord, holy shit run. And either it's, it's my next question is, was it the yield? Was it the profile? What was it about that run? And, and tell us about that run a little bit. If you had that. 
Yeah, I think it was uh, a time when things clicked or started to click. It was before I had really dialed in the drying techniques. Mm -hmm. So it was before the freeze dryer, because if I had a freeze dryer back then, you know, looking back on it, I'm like, oh, shit, I would that would have been amazing, you know? Yeah. Um, it was when we really started playing with, you know, controlling the variable of the input material. Cause we had started playing with all the other variables, the water, the clean ice, the cold environment, but it wasn't until we had that internal um, quality control by doing this in-house cultivating in-house and processing that, whether yep. that was in my basement, you know, in Colorado or on the larger level at pink house, um, we were cultivating, you know, what 5,000, 7,500 square feet, I think initially, and uh, had access to those different varieties and cultivars that I was bringing in. Um, you know, and that's, uh, that's where that, that papaya story comes in. I know you wanted to talk about that papaya cut. And there's even recently, I've heard some discrepancies, and it's interesting to me. Um, but uh, my story on the papaya, other people could have had a similar story, I'm sure, because I purchased the seeds in Amsterdam. They're widely available. They're still available today. Um, so I purchased those seeds from Mila in 2004. They were from Nirvana Seeds. They had the packaging to uh, prove that. Back in 2004, I was still scared to travel with anything, so I removed all packaging. I wrote little teeny sticky notes with like, a fucking uh uh what is it a, a a table basically like so i wrote like you know pn you know you know whatever it was and then i wrote a little note to myself you know on a different sticky note that i put somewhere else in one of my bags this is like how i did it this is like how oh, bro, it's the same thing i know exactly paranoid. what you're talking about you know yep. so like i threw away all the packaging and i brought all those seeds back to United States, some of which I popped instantly with my pops, you know, or with my roommates in Boulder or homies. And a lot of those seeds I kept for years. And as I was bringing in genetics to Pink House, like all those OGs from Johnny, um, even the OGs from Scott and from Rich and from Fletcher, um, I was also bringing in seeds like that DNA OG 18. And, uh, a lot of Cali connection because he was one of the other cats, you know, that was producing clone only in seed form. So I was hunting that. Um, and, uh, you know, one of the packs of seeds, I think there was a time where people started getting sick of how many OGs we had on the shelf a little bit. And they wanted more of that fruit variety. I'm like, oh, I got papaya seeds. And we started bringing in some of our European varieties, our Amsterdam genetic library and that got popped at pink house and i remember very specifically running the different phenotypes and being like okay that one didn't wash or didn't work at all we didn't have that term wash we didn't we weren't writing in 2010 to 2012 we weren't writing down the the um, the specific yield data that we were from 2012 on 2012 was when, you know, real regulation came into Colorado. And that's when I started taking my scribble scratch of yield data, which was basically like, did this one perform or not, um, into actually specifying the yield data itself. Um, and what our starting material was, 
what our end product was. And then from there it was like, was our starting material fresh frozen? And do we have to account for water weight? Because this is before the yields from fresh frozen started, people started talking about it and understanding them between like 1% and 7%. This is yep. still when I was saying things like, once we accounted for the water weight, my yield was 15% because I was trying to explain this to investors and people that didn't really get the, you know, the gist of this. And I was trying to explain it to consult clients and people that were paying me. They were like, well, what does that yield even mean? You know? Um, so, you know, a lot of that stuff started then and even really started with that papaya because we started to distinguish that some of these phenotypical expressions did not wash and some of them did. So it was like weight in, weight out became the final. But before that, it was sort of even the weight of the water is what you said? Yeah, well, we started discussing water weight of that fresh frozen material. And I was always getting it around 75 to 80%, pretty much consistently. But as the industry progressed and as you know, we started getting more accurate with our yield data, I would actually remove a gram of our starting material if it was fresh frozen from that fresh frozen bag before I washed it, I'd set it out on my parchment paper, like on my speed racks, literally. And within 24 to 48 hours, that gram was dry and I'd reweigh it and I'd get my exact water weight for that batch, which would devise my exact yield data for that batch. And that's how we were doing it initially. Um, and uh, then the freeze dryers came into play and we were able to get even more accurate water weight because I put that gram into the freeze dryer and we were now able to get exact water weight of that gram and then denote the yield. So on our first invoices, we had both yields accounted for. We had with water weight and if we accounted for the water weight yields on our invoices, just to really talk to the cultivator and say, hey, if you dried it out and sold it as you know, pounds, this is what you would have. This is what we're giving you in return. That's how I like mm -hmm. to put it. And that's how I was able to retain clients back then. People were wanting to give that fresh frozen material to butane, or they were wanting to not freeze it at all and just dry it for flour because flour is worth 4,400 a pound, you know? Um, so it took a lot of coaxing and sales and saying, hey, if you dried it out, you'd get this. And yes, you'd get your 44 bucks a pound, you know? But if I made it in hot hash, sold it for you, did all the legwork, got you 50% of that, I'm, I'm getting you 5,200 or whatever it was yep. back then. And that was my game. That's how I got material. That's how I worked with farmers. That's how I got farmers to fuck yeah. me, period. You, you quali qualified the, uh, the value. Period. Yeah. And I did the legwork, so they didn't have to yeah. sell it. And that's how I was able to gain clientele. I mean, that's essentially what Pipeline does now to, to farmers. It says, hey, you can, you can diversify. You can, in, you can invest in some infrastructure, get some freezers in here, follow yep. some SOPs, grow the correct stuff, and it's going to sell. And now you can diversify the way you're getting paid on that, on that, that field you got there. So that's yeah, beautiful same niche. Kind of beautiful yep. niche. Mad respect yep. for that one, bro. <laughs> So that, I mean, that really solves the problem with, like, I've always asked, you know, a lot of makers that I've talked to, are they accounting for, uh, are they, like, if you had an indoor grower who grew Rockwell and did a three-day dry back before he cut his plants and froze them versus uh, an, an indoor farmer that ran living soil beds that he planted directly into in no-till and kept his beds just as wet as the first day that he put his plants in, you know, there would be slight, there would be differences when those two went to compare yields that needed to be taken into account. And I think 
you know, the way that you've approached that, I think solves that problem, which is really cool. Um, that, that, that's a really unique way. So, so I want to ask you, Nick, about your, your bag set and, and when you're consulting, are you running a single traditional bag set from, from somebody or are you running multiple, uh, cert, doubling up on certain bags? Uh, when I'm washing or pressing? When you're washing, uh, like, are you doubling up on, say, your 160 or your 120 or any of that? The only bag I double is the 220. I've got one in my vessel if I'm using, you know, work bags. Yeah. Um, if I'm not using work bags, I generally use a mesh liner. And so yeah. both those work bags of the mesh liner would be a 220 micron. And then my first bag or last bag to put into my uh, separation system is also a 220. So I generally have multiple 220s as a little protection there. But that's an interesting question. I haven't heard that question before. Yeah, I always like that. I know guys like Sim cool. Simply Adam and a few other guys um, are big fans of doubling up on some of the non-desirable bags just to double check that that, that filtration is going well. I think it you know, works for them, might not work for everybody, but I always yeah. like to ask it. Right on. I might have double checked a few times over the last, you know, 10,000 runs by, by mistake, you know, but uh, <laughs> um, simply Adam's a cool dude. I spent some time in Barcelona with him. Um, I definitely double up my press bags, sometimes yeah. triple them up. Had some blowouts there? No, nah, just certain, certain runs, certain material wants to just slide out. Not a blowout, but um, wants to just slip do you uh do you typically do a larger micron on that outside bag like a 25 and then a 37 or are you 25 25 if i'm doing two bags 25 and 25 if i'm doing three bags 25 25 and then one for expansion like a 120 oh shit okay um are you doing big is that like three bags is that like a, su a super large press big ass presses yeah 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 when i'm like rocking 50 55 grams on a four by seven fuck yeah yeah you being a consultant you've probably had a lot of opportunity to look at these commercial machines uh the icon the osprey the axis the uh the hashatron um what what are your thoughts like are you um do you feel as though these these machines are at a point where they can produce uh, a quality at the same level as uh, you know, a paddle and a, and a brute vessel? Yes, due to replication and due to training people on SOPs, not everyone's going to have the same muscle capacity or strength and motions to put into that paddle each and every time. So consistency is key in the hash world. And if I can consistently turn a, uh, a wash rather than having one of my workers yield 4.8% and one of my workers yield 6%. Um, I prefer the consistency that 6% yielder, his quality is not as high. My 4.8% 4 yielder, his quality is there, but his yields need to improve. You know what I'm saying? So, um, for me, automating the agitation is key. I like it. 
Um, I still hand wash myself on small runs, but when we're talking about going upwards of, uh, you know, 30,000 grams, 40,000 grams, uh, hand paddling that much, it seems to be not the answer. So in yeah. scaling up, yes, automating the agitation is really key and being specific. I do sales for Rosin tech. So, uh, you know, they've, they did work with the Hashitron. Now they do some of their own stuff. Um, I do sales for peer pressure and I do sales for low temp. So I do sales for most of, not all, but a lot of the uh, automated companies or companies that are working on automation. Funny thing about peer pressure, I've, I've done sales for them for quite a while and helped design work, you know, on some of the very first units to work for our needs specifically in the essential lab. And it's kind of what built our relationship. Um, but uh, funny enough, the guy who builds my transmissions, you know, <laughs> is the same guy that uh, builds automation for, uh, you know, some of these companies. So um, it's uh, it's a trip, you know, we've all worked together for a long so, time. So being in the unique position that I think probably you're the only person on this planet that that is in that same position, are you able to identify these different machines from these different qualified companies that you work with and look at them as, as tools and say, this machine excels or is better for this type of operation while at, where this machine is better for this type of operation? 100% and space and budget and flow and allocation of materials and desire and needs and who owns what company? Yeah, yeah. I, I'm, I'm, I work around and work with anybody's needs and desires, and I'm able to build custom facilities for my clients from do ground feel, up. Do you feel as though are, are you preferential to top agitation versus bottom agitation, or do you do you feel it can be done correctly both ways? Do you lean on one side? That's a great question. Um, that's a great question. I. Uh, I got, I don't have a preference right now. That's totally fine, man. That's fair. Um, <laughs> I wanted to, I want to talk about fresh press versus uh, cured rosin. So okay. um, in Canada, I, I, I'm blessed. I get to travel a lot. I'm a dual citizen um, and I, I get to see a lot of different markets. And in Canada, there's uh, cured, cold cured rosin is, is pretty much, all that's accessible to the to the consumer, be it legacy or legal, okay. um, and that's just due to geographic location and how the markets unfolded. And and you know, fresh press was really only for for us makers. And and for the last many years in California, you've seen solidless gain traction and and fresh press be the form factor that is desired. Is that the same thing that you you've seen in in? Do you agree with that? And then is that the same thing that you saw in Colorado or were there differences? No, I'm seeing it as a personal preference. Um, I think that the reason you might be seeing more cold cure in Canada is because Canada's entire market is based on shipping legally within those confines. So you can ship via your postal service, you know, this medicine. And if you're shipping fresh press, it's harder, it's harder to control via your postal system because it's not somebody driving around in a car oh, truck. Um, you know, um, 
also in Canada's market, everything is held in a central distro location. So that product is all held the same, right? In, in the medical market, I'm not talking the legacy market. Sorry, I should. Oh, be no, no, no. I, and, and, I, and I completely, I, I like, I understand the limitations in Canada and, and why we're not able to achieve that either in the legal or the legacy. My question more to you was in Colorado, are you seeing the same uh, market preferences that, that we're seeing in, in California where there's a large presence of consumers that are looking to acquire fresh press? So um, I, I want to touch on a few things there. I think it might look like that from an outside perspective due to what's being produced on the license market and who's been able to come to market with you know, their internal structure and that control. Because in the California market, you really can't come to market with a fresh press product unless you have cold transportation and cold retail display because unless it's retail display and you have cold storage in the back of a dispenser that shit ain't selling so there's there's that you know the that that we should you know touch on real quick um secondly on the legacy market i'm seeing i think more cold cure um, that product hits broker's hands before it hits client's hands and that broker is holding it and the, the creator doesn't want the broker to fuck it up, yada, yada, yada. So they do a cold cure so that it retains that shelf stability, not needing refrigeration. The new, you know, the two gram jars and the Miron jar with the wrap, you know, um, most of those I would say are cold cure. And the ones that are fresh press, their goal is not to see the, the final customer as translucent they know it's going to butter up so that's just they're happy about it it is what it is right um i wanted to touch on the fact that cold cure is easier to travel with so in a lot of markets that you're seeing shipping and traveling and you know old world markets like temple balls the reason for pressing a temple ball and sealing in those terpenes and protecting that you know resin within was to be able to transport it. So I really think that that's the comparison that I'd like to use between cold cure and fresh press is the ability to transport. For sure. I might have like, I might have a skewed view on it. Like I just, you know, I get to go down, I check out a few shops. I know like um, Papa Select like dropped the full line of, of fresh press. And I was like, what, what? And then like bringing on guys like Mendo Budsmith, Solventless Viking and, you know, a real deal resin who's, you know, like I'm not smoking it unless it's fresh press. And I'm like, man, why? And, and associating, you know, quality, like I huh. talked to a lot of Californians associating wanting to see that clear fresh press uh, the same way that a smoker wants to see that white ash. And they go, I don't, I might like it like marbled up. I might, I might cure it out myself, but like, I want to see the fresh what? press. Yeah. And I like, I like fresh press in that it, it really represents what the hash maker's intention was. If they took a photo of it on Instagram to represent that product, you know, it should look like that when it reaches the hands of the consumer. Um, and really that's the, the, I think one of the coolest things about fresh press, because you're not getting the terpenes right off the top. You have the ability to manipulate it as the consumer and turn it into cold cure, if that's what you prefer. Um, it is a beautiful representation of what the hash maker wanted it to be. Now, is it 
prefer is it my preference no um i'm a traveler so i almost prefer me manipulating that product before i touch road rather than it being manipulated while i'm on the road a lot of it comes down to personal preference um there's things you can hide with a cold cure compared to a fresh press um but there's things uh that are not as desirable on a fresh press as well because to a Attain that stability on specific strains, you need to go up hotter in temperature, plain and simple. So you are losing some terpenes on a lot of fresh press, not all. Um, and some people are fresh pressing at low temps, but you can't do that with all strains. I know people that are doing fresh press and they're bumping it up to at least 190 on most of their cultivars because they want to butter up in two weeks if they're pressing at 160. If they press at 90, it lasts them two months. Just it is what it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's all perishability. It's you know it is, it, it it goes into these stages, and I and I think it's more like I always look at fresh press as like the pop off, you know. It's like all right, I can get it in this raw form, but it's so limited in what you can do with it. Think of it: you got a bunch of fresh press, you can't fucking do anything with it. It's a pain in the ass to gram up. It's a pain in the ass to do anything with. So it has these limitations, and who gets to see it? Who has access to it? It's perishable. It's it's very fucking finicky. It doesn't have a shitload of flavor, I don't think. I mean, I'll I'll argue with anyone that wants to be like, oh, fresh press is terpier. It's like it's sometimes I it's think it's a truer terpier. representation of what that initial starting product was because I think that with cold cure you get more of a broad spectrum. It might not, you know, be. I, I don't know. I, I go back and forth. Uh, I look at it as like raw food or cooked food is kind of how I see it. Because if you give me raw food, like carrots and other fucking things like that, I'm like, oh, this is a nice fucking, this is a nice, you know, roll or something here. But if you cook, that's, I, and I literally see it that way. Like for me, and I don't know if it's just my personal senses, preference. I like this. Yeah. Like when I fuck with fresh press, I'm always like, oh, thanks. Now I got to do some work. You know what I mean? Like, it's just sort of like a, it's a oh, nice gesture. Cool to hear but, this. At the, but at the same time, like I just, I, I saw Sam from a uh, show and he was stoked and he gave me some, uh, some of Rosin Tech stuff and it was all fresh press. And I was so excited because I was like, oh, this is awesome. I, now I can kind of, you know, turn it into uh, Arnold Palmer, which is what I call like the half and half, you know, I'm like, I'll, I'll sit it over here and then I'll check it. And then I'm like, oh, I, but it always turns up to be eventually, you know, you're going to whip it and you're going to smoke it. But it was nice to get to enjoy that time with it as it sort of nucleated and changed its format so that I could consume it. But in reality, it, it, I think that I'm with you, like I'm a traveler, I'm doing shit. So I prefer to be able to check it, you know, like I bum myself out even here at my desk because I'll take some melt and I'll, I'll take some parchment and I'll press it. And of course, I'm not. I'm not thinking like, vol. You know, I'll press too much melt out. I'll I'll do it, and I get this giant piece, and then I'll be like, oh, I'll just do bigger dabs or whatever. But it'll sit at my desk, and then it gets a little dry, and then I'm like, you can't even get it stuck to a dabber, yeah. No, and then I'm like, fucking. Then I give it to Kevin or something. I'm like, hey, Kevin, you want a dab? Like, I just like <laughs> it just loses its thing. So it's it's all dying, as far as I'm concerned. It's all losing its its expression. You know, so you can catch it when it's really early, but I think it's too early in fresh press to really get an enjoyable for me uh, experience. And I, and I, but I know some people like Jameson's talking about a lot of heady boys who are like, oh, they want to set a standard 
to what they consume. And it's like, oh, if it's not fresh press, I can't tell the quality of it truly. Yep. So, you know, I'm not going to fuck with anything like that. But a, a lot of cats in Michigan are are, are in that boat because I just came from two yep. consults in Michigan this week. And uh, one of my you know good friends who's actually one of my very first patients from Treeline 20 plus years or 20 years ago or some shit. Yeah. Um, He's now, you know, he got a brand, a licensed brand in Michigan, and he's fresh press or death, you know, type of guy. But on my consults, I taught the first client, I taught him five different post-process consistencies so that he can really slay according to what his client wants. And for me, that's the key is in the hash maker's arsenal, the ability to do all of those consistencies from fresh press to cold cure to jam to carts to whatever else you may, you know, want to add on well, what, that. What does the market want? You know, that's yep. what, what a lot of guys don't realize. We can have our preference in what we like, but if you're in this business and you want to make money, you're going to create and produce and sell to the market what it wants. And that's, who's going to make the most money, right? You're going to sell it at the right price point. You're going to have the lowest barrier of entry for, for someone to purchase. And they're going to be able to be a return consumer that loves your fucking product and can't live without it. That I, you know, when I look at business, I want to be that. I, I like being the top of the triangle. Like that's cool. It's super dope up there, and you can see all the cool newest shit. But it's this chunk of that fucking triangle that makes the money, you know. And I think when it comes down to it, you're if you're a maker in California, or you know, especially California market, and you were going to say we're only going to sell fresh press, you're only going to sell so much fresh press. You're not going to sell as much as you did if you were going to sell cold cure and fresh press and all these other things. And you can only work with, you know, five out of uh, 5,000 distro companies, you know? It's true because they don't have the capability. And then like Nick, you know, Nick made the point, like, how are you going to sell to the end consumer? Because the dispensary is not going to give you freezer space or a fucking counter space to put your little, your super cool little freezer on. They're like, get the fuck out of here, dude. No, you're going to have it in 710 Labs logoed freezer. If you're going to have it up there, I watched it. It's (laughs) in theirs. Yeah. Or 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 what the dispensary will tell you is, oh, you want some counter space? That's fucking 10K a month to put your freezer up there. Let's do business. Yeah. You know, and and that's, that's the, the name of the game. So he's right. Like it's not so much out there, but when you, when you hit a sesh and you see the dude rolling in with the cooler, and it's that heady boy kind of experience. There's going to be cold. There's going to be fresh press there, the micron jar cold cold cure and all that stuff. But um, as long as there's fucking hash there, that's what matters, right? That's really what it comes down to. And I think for me though, personally, it's too terpy when it's at that. It's like a VOCs are fucking through the roof, and I, and I really can't get uh, you know that exact that exact super duper uh, uh, rip. Um, so you know, uh, yeah. And I think, you know, I, I like to actually touch on the difference. And that's actually really what I was speaking to um, in the, the the taste difference. There's more of a, a differentiation in taste to me between jam and cold cure because jam is actually cooked, you know, to mm-hmm. a, an extent. And I get more of like a monoterpene, those dense ones, the only ones yep. that stuck around, all the other ones boys. that are more air volatile or not there. So I get a very strong, but one, you know, singular rather than uh, complex, if you will. You know, sometimes you get a few flavors, of course, you're not just one, but in general, you get more of a singular dominant complex flavor in jam compared to a cold cure, uh, just due to the fact that you're not 
burning off those terps, um, those, mm-hmm. those specific ones. So um, jam looks sexy. And in reality, if you look at the testing behind jam, jam tests higher um, in terpenes, which is kind of cool yep. to notate, if you will. Um, I think Ryan at Olio and the boys at Leafa did some side-by-sides between the jam and the cold cure and literally showed, even though they're cooking it, they're seeing higher terpene results. But you're, you're stacking them though, right? But as far as smelling it, I get more of a broad spectrum, you know, in that cold cure compared to the jam, which I get more singular. So you know what I do it, notice about cold cure is the smaller the rig that you smoke cold cure out of, the better it is. You ever like, you have like a little tiny rig and it's a little sipper and then you smoke some cold cure out of that and you're like, oh, I, but if it's a bigger rig, like maybe an egg and you smoke some cold cure you, or fresh, uh, fresh press, sorry, fresh press is what I mean. The smaller the rig, the better the fresh press tastes to me for some odd fucking reason. It's like a little tiny thing. But I'm just weird. Hung up in the water. My my theory on that, that when you touched on the jam and and the proven results on having higher terpene uh, content is that during that jam process, when exposed to heat, the overall mass of uh, the, the resin and, and everything that is encompassed in that jar uh, lessens, and that's where you're going to see that increase in terpene pro in in terpene content as well. If the if the if I lose twenty pounds, my muscles now weigh more as compared to the rest of my organs and fat. I like it, the, law, the laws of absolute is what it is. The difference in mass between cold cure and jam are, is very insignificant. Hmm. interesting yeah like Actual i said it's, it's just a theory me thinking yeah. okay, how how are these how are these terpenes changing increasing um i would say oh, okay they're getting count they're getting weighed against less of a a, a group and that, that i think that's fun. part of it i think that's part of it but i think what's happening yeah. is, is when you heat terpenes they start to change and they actually start to double up and stack up and that's what he's talking about is the more that you heat it their terpenes are going to change and they're actually going to not multiply, but they're going to change from this size terpene to these bigger monoterpenes from the sesquis to the monoterpenes and get larger. And then therefore you have more measurable terpenes (laughs) because they're in that larger format. And, but what you're saying does apply too. it does because you have the laws of absolute. You can only have, there's always potency to terpene is always on that sliding scale for whatever the mass is. So that's, but it's a combination of the two, but I, I like jams, man. I think that jams are rad. And I, and I even love the vape pens, you know, just like turning it into a liquid and now getting to hit these pens and getting to act, actually be able to tell the difference. You know, someone hands you a, a, a rosin pen now and you hit it. I love how you can be like, oh, that's GMO. Like, you know, it's kind of finally at that phase where people are able to kind of break it down that way, which is nice. And, and the hardware is getting better too, so every day hardware is a huge you know hold up in our world and even filling uh equipment i posted about that the other day is i've managed to scale up a number of these processes um and i'll be honest and i'll be the first to tell you that filling i can make as much you know consistent viscous rosin cart juice as possible i can make pounds and pounds of it but filling on that scale is difficult you can't just pour it into a thompson duke and expect everything to be 
perfect half grams every time. Is, is that your preferred um, filler? Is it no, Duke? no, I'm actually, well, for live resin and for, you know, other, other things. Yes. Um, but when it comes to rosin, I keep going back to, there's not a method. There is equipment that could be modified to work. Um, and we've done that, but there's really still not a piece of equipment and a method that goes along with it to properly scale the filling of rosin carts. Cause we're dealing with a different viscosity than mm -hmm. anybody else. Most of these filling pieces of equipment were designed for the vape, the tobacco vape, the nicotine vape, the salt nick vape industry. Um, and uh, so we struggle with that as our consistency is way different than uh, a salt nick consistency. Yep. And that's, yeah, that affects the hardware as well. The porosity, the millimeter holes, the amperage, all of that plays a role in that flavor and that experience that you're getting. What are the, what are the, uh, some of the hardware companies that you, that you are using? I think people do want to know like, what kind of filling equipment you, you prefer, what sort of hardware you prefer, what sort of equipment you're using and what you're doing. So can you tell us a little more about that? Yeah, right now I'm doing it. I've scaled it back to doing most of this by hand as far as equipment. So I've gone back to the 50 shot, which was the first tool that we used for filling, which is funny, um, or that style of heated syringe, because um, yeah. that's what I'm using. I'm using an old uh, e-nail body with a diode connected to a uh, wrap that goes around a syringe and I'm pumping out half gram clicks at a time. And for me, not having an air compressor push air through is one of the keys and one of the reasons I've scaled back and having even consistent heat throughout that whole utensil, having less room of plastic parts that aren't heated perfectly by a lamp. If you're talking a lamp system yeah. or having diodes or metal heating elements, you know, that there's just always a space or always somewhere where you're pushing air through and there's a clogging or uh, an area that cools down the oil, which creates air bubbles in most yep. all of the automated filling systems and methods out there. So we've gone back to hand filling uh, 100 carts at a time. Um, and... Uh, yeah, it's really, really, you know, I'm not going to get too much into the tech, but it's not about the equipment. It's about the temperature, viscosity, and the hard strain specific, strain specific too, when it comes to yeah. the, oh, yeah. a lot of it. So it's oh, tough. yeah. Strain nutrient specific sometimes, uh, wax content specific, just the same way that you're dealing with in the hydrocarbon world. You know, um, we just deal it on more of an extreme level. Yep. No, that's very interesting. I wanted to ask you, Nick, about uh, are you seeing a rise of resin blending or mixing? Um, you know, I know, I think Hugo was won by a blend, and I think Legends was it Le was Legends also Legends was also won by a blend. Is that something that you've seen a rise of, or, or is it something that you've been seeing happening for quite some time? I think it's been happening for a long time. We just call it different terms. Some people blend it after they wash it. Some people blend it after they press it. Some people blend it before they wash it. Some people are creating their own unique, you know, genetic variable um, <laughs> to the game. So um, I think, you know, we've just always called it artistic blends, whether that's mixing material to create more of a desired effect. Like back in the day, 
you know, our blue dream didn't yield at all, but people wanted that flavor. So we mixed it with our Bubba that's, that was yielding back then. And the Bubba was too oily. Blue Dream had more waxes. They tended to blend well and collect well. So we called it Blue Bubba. That was just one of the very first examples. But, um, you know, moving today, you know, I think people are creating these uh, blends in genetic form. Um, people are creating these blends in the wash. They don't have quite enough of their key lime pie, um, but they think that it goes well with their lemon tree and the, the lemon tree doesn't really yield, whatever it may be, you know, so they blend the two. Um, I always would prefer to breed that blend overall. Um, if you got into a point where you don't have enough of something, you know, creating that blend in the wash is okay, as long as you're sieving it together. If you go to create that blend after you've created the raw hash and you're sieving it together, I think it can create some inconsistencies in the final product. Um, and then even more so if you're taking already pressed rosin and creating a blend at that point in time, even more inconsistencies in that final product. And as a judge and as a gone GA, um, I think that that's one of the main things that we do judge on, not color, but inconsistencies. And improper inconsistencies, because having a turp layer on the top of a white, you know, milky uh, cold cured batter is not a bad inconsistency. Yeah, no, absolutely. Mm -hmm. I definitely want to <laughs> touch on the, uh, the Gangier a little bit later. I wanted to ask you, you know, you've, you're an individual who's had, a, who's had the ability to look at a tremendous amount of different material over the years. And I wanted to know if you noticed any consistent differences between resin cultivated um, sun indoors versus outdoors you know have you have you seen consistencies in in that you can say i i can correlate that to being sun grown versus indoor uh variation really hard to tell in in final form um we were having a little bit of this discussion on uh the social media outlets even just yesterday or the day before um i think a lot of it if we're gonna really talk about the difference between uh outdoor or full sun and indoor is gonna be you know dependent on the terroir or the actual environment that that full sun is grown in because you could have a property that just gets beaten by the wind that's in the high deserts that you're getting that orange dust and orange dirt just kicked up on the plants and you're going to taste that and see that in that full sun product um, there's some environments that provide just enough stress to that trichome now we have to re realize that the trichome is a secondary metabolite and it's used to protect the plant against environmental factors so sometimes you get those extremes and environmental factors and it pumps that trichome to just the fatness just the right fatness i've seen it in areas that get pollinated at just the right time i've had blue you know this variation of blue dream that never yields over 1.5% for us, but it got pollinated at just the right time and it yielded 6% for me because it pumped those trichomes, you know? Um, so there's going to be some variation there when it comes to that. And that's really my take on it is having the correct or proper terroir for that cultivar. It's going to be hard to match, but <clears throat> it's going to be very rare that you have that exact right environment without the uh, environmental um, issues like wind and extreme temperatures and bugs and um, dust and dirt and stuff, you know, like that. So. Absolutely. Absolutely. I wanted to touch on something. I wanted to touch on something you touched on a little bit before, which is freeze dryers. And um, 
you know, what Fletcher did as the first guy to play with freeze dryers and, and you know, the, the significance of that. Can you touch on that a little bit? I mean, I've got a couple of other questions about freeze dryers, but I'd like you to just kind of start up. Start yeah. off that as I know you wanted to touch so, on yeah, I really uh, attribute the freeze dryers coming into our industry to Fletcher. Um, some people give me credit, but we, after watching Fletcher fail the very first time, because I think we were texting back then, messaging on social media, he was like, bro, don't get one. He bought one and he had the temperatures set to what they come out of the box, which I believe was 120 at the time. And he cooked the hash. He's like, it burned the hash. All the turps are gone like all gummy, I don't know what happened. The next day, he call, he messages us or posts or some shit. Okay, actually, never mind. I was able to get the shelf temperature lower, and this shit's fucking going to work. And when Fletcher said that it's going to work, we, we just went full on. I bought seven of them. I bought seven scientific ones um, for our licensed commercial facility because I now had the ability, you know, Fletcher's going to talk about it, but at that time he didn't have a licensed facility to play. He had, you know, a home, home facility or whatever it may be. Um, and we had that, you know, rare opportunity because we're in a licensed protected facility to take with a lot of this tech and run with it. And uh, so we bought all, we bought out, harvest right we bought seven of them and went full speed ahead and we're one of the first commercial licensed companies to really scale up you know the harvest right and the main reason that i went in and bought them all because just weeks prior the health department and the marijuana enforcement enforcement division came into my facility and said okay so we've seen that you don't check anything off it's dangerous on the fire department list. So what are you guys doing in here? Because I used to have the fire, fire department come in with 17 page checklists. And I'd be like, where are your tanks? We don't have tanks. Where are your ovens? We don't have ovens. Where do you keep your butane? We don't use butane. You know, and it was all this stream of questions that we couldn't really answer for them. And so finally, you know, med and health department came and they were like, so what do you do to mitigate the chance for mold and microbial if you're using water and plant material? And I'm like, oh, okay, I like that question. Um, we test for all of our incoming material so that it doesn't have any prior mold and microbial issues before I wash it. It was a big one that we really started doing in the industry when we started seeing other companies fail for pesticides and other things. Um, and she was like, okay, that, that'll get you by, but we need more. Let's re, you know, reassess this topic basically when, when they revisit. And so I had that just looming in my head as something we needed to address. Um, and when I saw the freeze jars worked and now we could separate to remove hundred percent of the plant material, and now we can use a freeze jar to remove hundred percent of the water. Now we can appease the med and the health department in saying that this is my step to mitigate the chance for mold and microbial. So I went in, I bought them all. And, uh, that was what I wrote into my SOPs is our step to mitigate the chance for my mold and microbial. Cause if there's no water, there's no chance. So in your mind, knowing what you know now, um, a perfectly executed freeze-dried resin against perfectly executed air-dried resin, um, what are your thoughts? I'm going freeze-dried now because you can really manipulate it, and I don't even think we've gotten to perfect yet. 
with the freeze dryers in all reality i think we're going to find a sweet spot and there's going to be a company that comes out that hits that sweet spot every time rather than having to guess you know the new harvest right farmers have like uh moisture sensors but what moisture do we want in hash do we want it at zero do we want it at 0 0.003 you know um so something to be discussed still i believe where do you, uh, where do you typically like to set your shelf temps 35 to 40. Sure. Have you ever that also would be dictated upon the duration you have because yeah. shelf temp is going to be directly affecting the dry time. And another <coughs> thing that will be directly affecting the dry time is your actual PSI in the chamber or that mTOR number, um, which we lose on the new software. The new pharmaceuticals do not have a mTOR readout, which makes me sad. So I still love my beast of... Uh, of an old software um, that gives me that readout. Absolutely. We've seen a, a slight resurgence in, in dry sifting and, you know, a lot of, a lot of talk recently around some tech that's been around for a while, but utilizes a glove or a hand and, and, and static collection. And I just wanted to, you know, ask you if that's something that, you know, has been on your radar and, and you've been aware of or what your thoughts are on it. Definitely on my radar. Definitely something that's been on my radar since day one. I've seen people talk about how they can scale that process even larger um, than the water process, which I agree. But you're scaling it to create a raw or a crude end product, which becomes very difficult to get the quality that I want. Because once you're able to properly separate most cultivars, heads from the material in dry sifting, you're actually having to dry that material pretty well. Um, in that process of drying that material, uh, you're losing a lot of those air volatile terpenes. So to get to a point of creating viability, you're getting to a point of losing terpenes. So for me, it's not a method that I train people on or that I promote. It's a great method to get large scale crude, specifically, you know, like the wizard tech or utilizing dry ice or um, CO2 and doing like the wizard brew style. Yeah, you can get scaled up fucking large. Um, but is the quality going to be there? No. I think there's something to be said about fresh frozen. Now talking about frozen or frozen sift, fresh frozen sift, the quality is there for sure. But can you get the yield? That's the question. Yeah. Do you see? Yeah, that's the question is, is it, is it a viable uh, product for the retail market or is it just for us? Just, you know. Yeah, because once you go to market in a place like California that's over-regulated and overtaxed, you're sitting at 200 plus dollars a gram to actually put a product like that out and your market and your margin, you know, or your market turns to nothing because it's such a small niche people that are going to spend that money and the education has to be behind it. It might come, you know, you might create that niche, um, but it's tiny. It's a small niche. You said earlier that uh, one way, or when, when um, Jameson asked you the question about blends, you had mentioned, uh, you know, about breeders. And, and essentially, you can create a blend by obviously creating a, a new cultivar. Uh, what are some of your thoughts on the new hash breeders, the guys that are the, the Edgars, Masonics, the, you know, these, these guys that are kind of just hash dork breeders Fucking that rad. love the hash culture? What, what's, what are your thoughts on, on even like their progenitors 
and what they're using. You talked about the cute, the head size, you know, the cuticle size of that wax. That's really what's making the bulk. You know, that's that's kind of what's making a, these the larger size, yields. The structure of that trichome and the trichome density. I think those are the cuticle. three factors. You know, yeah. Um, yeah, and that the breeders are fulfilling a much needed niche. People ask me and have asked yep. me every single day for the last ten years, what is, what's your favorite washer? You know, and now if you can say, hey, anything from Oni or anything from Bloom or anything from Masonic, because Masonic's using that same washing mail and hitting yeah, everything Wilson. with it, you yeah. know, um, Mr. Wilson. Yeah. Um, now that we're seeing some consistency in that, I think it's a beautiful thing. Um, I think one of the first people to really do it was Mike, uh, Exotic Genetics, working with Cuban. Yeah. He was breeding for those trichome dent strains because some of those strains, they had a thick waxy cuticle. So that the structure wasn't all there. The trichome density was there, but the actual structure um, you know, might not have been there for some of them. You know, Some of them, they're hitters and they bang and they're still banging today. I'm, I'm yeah. not by any means dissing that. I think that people are just moving, you know, moving in more of a hash direction now. And I think what's beautiful is if you look at Taylor from Little Lake Valley Seed Co. and and his line and what he's putting out, he's using certain certain hyper milkers, like cookies and cream is one base. Yep. Uh, the Mike. banana OG, banana OG is another base. Yep. Uh, and I Bang. think the and know, big up the elite. banana OG. We got Oregon Kid and Elite before yep. that, you know. Yep. Um, for, not that cut one. So, for 20 fucking years. But what it reminds me of is when, when breeding and cannabis was all about flower and it was all about size and bulk of yield. And we used to see guys grabbing the G13 and crossing into G13 and using that as what's called cornerstone genetics, you know, kind of, uh, using one certain thing to, to Alice's beneficial traits that, you know, are going to transfer from either side. Yeah. And, and just being able to rely on them consistently. I love now that you see these hash breeders that have the same opportunity, but instead they're taking an, you know, they're taking GMO, they're taking the, the banana OG, they're taking cookies and cream, and they're using that as that, that preferred progenitor to now fucking bulk up that cuticle size and bulk up that head size and bring some of that shit to the table. Uh, and, and, but what's more interesting is, what's that next fucking terpene profile that's going to come out of left field that tastes like, you know, I think it's going to be pot roast. I think it's going <laughs> to taste like pot roast and, we're, and you're going to, it's going to be a meal. You're going to be like, I, I want coffee. If the fucking dab could taste like espresso, espresso? Huh. just think I fucking stoked you'd be. Or I'm vanilla. sure there's going to be like, some bubble crosses coming after this, this uh, YouTube then. Something, something's gonna come out, man, and that, well, that's why I love. You know, there's um, there's Kaya's coffee, Kaya's coffee, uh, Pacific Northwest Roots, the brethren out there. You know, oh, yeah. that's a good example. Yeah. So it's a good one. Yeah, well, maybe maybe, wait, maybe Kaya needs to dial it in, Ross, Kaya, Paul, big up family, um, and dial it in and make an espresso. Right. He made coffee, now he needs to make espresso. We need espresso. We need that. Yeah, one. yeah. Ross, Kaya, Paul, what's good? That's it. So are, are <laughs> yeah. you? So are you working with any, you know, you said Cuban was working with exotic. Are you, are you eyeballing and maybe going to be working with some breeders? You know, do you need, do you need some, some, some pushing in that direction from the, from the YouTubers or what? I'm always down to work with breeders. Um, I do have a gentleman who's up in humble, who's reached out, wanted to, wants to do a project. And uh, my best friend for 20, 
for 25 years, it's crazy to say that, um, is also an amazing breeder. Um, He goes by Genome Alchemy, and I have been working with him for years. When I find a pack of seeds, I want him to get into the rotation. It's going straight to him. When I find a male, you know, that needs to be in the rotation, it's, it's goes to straight to him. Um, clone only varieties straight to him. So even recovering things that, from our past, like we just got the marijuana back. And I say we, because anytime I get anything back from my past, it goes straight to Greg to back up. Um, nice. so, you know, yeah. I want to ask you, Nick, about, um, just touching on what Addison said with the breeders and, you know, we're seeing tremendous, uh, tremendous focus, or on uh, or new new breeders carving out their niche in, in sol- solventless focused milkers or hashers. Um, I want to know what your thoughts are on the plant's capability to perform farther than it currently does. So you know, with GMO and some of these crosses, we're seeing yield numbers on wet around you know eight nine percent. How much farther do you think this? How much more does this plant have to give us? Um, I, I think we... there's always a little bit of ways to go. Um, you know, I, I, I did want to back up, um, it was something yeah, sure. that, that triggered something in my head that I wanted to talk about. Um, oh, you know, with all these new breeders breeding for hash has come a lot of these cool seed swap events, you know, and seed swap events have also existed prior to that. Um. But I've actually been thinking about an idea to do a clone-only OG-specific swap meet event where because we've been now collecting them back for so long, and some of these we've had in our family for 20 years, back then it was all about coveting them. Now today, I think it's all about preserving these ones. So I'm thinking about doing a clone-only drop like seed swap style we might have some washers in that in that situation but focusing on clone only og so stay tuned for that i just want to where do you fall in your where do you fall in your preference with ogs like i know addison leans like i think towards like more of like a ghost with the lemon pine saw like where where are you falling in in that spectrum oh i mean it's crazy you hit it nail on i mean ghost is my favorite but not due to the flavor ghost has always been it it stood out for me due to the narcotic high. You know, I've never been one to take pills. I've never been into that, but ghost gives me that type of feeling, like a very narcotic feeling. And ghost is also something that provides crazy appetite. It's structure and taste is almost identical to my SFV. I've got two side by side that I've grown for years, right? Um, It's almost identical, grows almost identical, (laughs) tastes almost identical, almost. But the ghosts high will make me go to Whole Foods and spend three hundred dollars and eat all three hundred dollars for the munchies in a two, two hours. Bags. You you know two bags. Two bags for three hundred bucks. You Bro. get two bags of groceries. But I'll still eat them all. <laughs> you know what's funny? I think ghost is so. Uh, what I, the way I've always understood the OGs <clears throat> is that there's three phenos. There's abusive. There's SFV, and there's Tahoe. And the difference between those is that the abusive is much bigger and it had a lot, a lot more of a scent to it, like a real gassy, crazy scent. It was a bigger plant. It grew much larger. It produced more. SFV was a big plant with smaller buds that had red hairs on them. And the Tahoe is the, the pheno that had the orange hairs, but kind of looked like the abusive, but it had that orange hair on it. 
And if you look at OGs, they go from red hair all the way into orange hair and, and they're in the, the same sort of profile, but different conifer and the way that they grew and different conifer in the shape of the bud. But then, but you had an orange hair, the Tahoe always had that orange hair in it. So those are the three that I always kind of would put them into those categories that when they would come down or when they would come up, depending on what they were, you, you'd be like, oh shit, yeah. And because the first time I ever saw SFV, I was like, these pounds are under, dude. There's no fucking way because they were such small pounds, you know, because it was smaller, dense, crazy OG nugs. And because you're used to the abusives and you're used to these Tahos that are much fucking bigger, it was just like, wait a minute, what the fuck's up with these LA pounds, dude? And and then all the planetaries were like that too. They were all off that SFV. So that's how I remember them. That's how I kind of always categorize them. And I've had a million conversations about this, but I wonder if you... Cause you're an OG head too. Like you, you love the fucking OG. So I wonder if you saw sort sort of saw it that way, or what was your sort of view of it? Um, I haven't. I guess I haven't paid attention enough. I want to get into more of that, you know, genomic studies as far as tracing the OGs back. Um, I think yeah. that those studies have started. I don't know if there's, yeah, been, yeah. Uh, you know, final. You, you did you start those at Steep Hill? <laughs> no, there's. I think Reggie uh, at Front Range is doing okay. a lot of different stuff. Now he's kind of like the person that I look to that's leading uh, a lot of that, that in that realm and that world of stuff. Uh, they seem to be like they have funding and they're able to do stuff over in that side. No, Steep Hill never did. Uh, Steep Hill was able yeah. to isolate stuff based on potency profiles and, and testing profiles and stuff. <laughs> but um, unfortunately, uh, no, I don't think they ever got into that stuff. They did some cool genome stuff. But did you know right Nick, did you look at the the face off from Fletcher? Have you had a chance to to take a look at that or grow that out? Oh yeah, I ran it for a while. It had like a a very sprite esque to it for me. It had that lemon lime. Um, that's mm. what the face off was. It had a fizzy nature and it had like a diesel fuel to it. That um, it wasn't as much gas. It was more diesel, I'd say, um, compared to you know some of the other OGs. But yeah, no, I ran it. Um, I think I was given that cut by one of those boys, Fletch, Scott, or Rich. Um, and uh, yeah, something that I got and smoked around the same time was the poison, which I just seen Fletch put back into rotation via this sleeping with the stars that I'm smoking some phenos of today. Are you going to give Fletch a call and see if he can get you a Moonbow cut that we can share? Bro, I messaged him and I just, I was late on it. It's my fault, but because I was up there in, in Pacific Northwest like a month or two ago on a consult and he just happened to be with family um, and doing some family stuff. But I meant to like message him earlier and actually make a point to visit him because I'm up there a little, you know, not as often these days. And I just never make it up there. And like, since he's got his own shop, I just haven't visited and I need to, I need to show him that respect. Yeah, you gotta go visit, man. That that Moonbow's got me in my feelings, bro. That shit. I know he brought me the Moonbow and, and to an Emerald Cup one year. All the different finos and his like Tupperwares, taking little teeny pieces out for me. And I'm like, bro, please, please. So <laughs> when good. it first dropped, like probably fucked five years ago. Six five years, years ago, ago yeah. Huh. There's a fino of it that a fino that we saw at Legends that uh, that Dan and Bobby ran. That was okay. just fucking beautiful man. yeah and damn it, damn it bobby works for fletch over there right like, yeah, yeah. He, Chris like works in house him. yeah yeah he's there he's he's yeah. a killer yeah, yeah no that's so. uh <clears throat> that's a great team man he's definitely one of the pioneers of uh of you know hash breeding 
creating different stuff along with his exotic, you know, making that stuff now. But I see, you know, kids like Mace and, and some of these other dudes are, are in a collective because they, because they're creating a community. You know, Mace is probably one of the craziest ones because he has this giant community that he's able to put testers out to guys that are, that are, and that, that helps it accelerate much quicker. You yeah. know, that helps it where females are coming back and different males, males are coming back to him that he can then take and, oh, for sure. and fuck, you know, fuck the whole game up on some other level, which is crazy. That's, I love him. I love what he's, uh, what he's, he's got there. good energy, man. Yeah. I like him. Such good energy. I, I saw this, uh, you know, speaking of like weird strains and weird shit, I saw uh, the guys from Grandiflora, you know, and those guys are famously known for like gelato genetics and that and that kind of thing. Yeah. But Mark showed me a, a strain, probably like four or five different strains. One of them, the best way I can explain it is like white boy weed, like super fuck, like Leonard Skinnerd fucking weed, man. It was like rock and roll. Cause it had, it had this turp profile on it that was just completely fucking different. And, and I don't know, maybe I'm just a racist. I don't know what the fuck my problem is, but this shit was so different from the other profiles and so completely outside of anything else that it was, that it had such a unique profile. Um, and, and I didn't get to really, I'll, I'll ask him and find out what the, the terpenes were, but have you seen anything like that? Have you seen, have you seen any strains recently? anywhere you know we're talking about moonbow we're talking about this weird shit i saw the other day have you okay. seen anything that that is like okay like i don't know what the fuck that was but it was a because you know we're used to papaya we're used to fruit profiles and gas profiles have you the seen fugu, it? the fugu farms that we had with scott at uh that was a that was a really unique term that tasted like manischewitz wine it was, crazy. Oh, it was weird as fuck that was all a right. weird one but definitely all right was. all right so i have had the pleasure of you know, judging some very large competitions in the last just two and a half weeks, three weeks here in Barcelona, in Canary Islands, in the United States. And so I've seen uh, a plethora of stuff, but um, <clears throat> strains and varieties that really stood out. So, you know, I still just really like this limes line from Doc Hayes. And originally it came from Lemon Bean, um, AKA, uh, I even got some seeds of this that we called Sweet Lemon Tea, but it came from uh, Brandon and Shiloh before they split up. And when they split up, Brandon kept 2000 of the beans or however many it was, and Shiloh kept his half. And Shiloh gave me some of them. Brandon put his out as lemon bean and it's at OG Eddie Lep times lemon tree. Um, okay. Shiloh, I think kept some of his and I got some and, and uh, that cultivar though has proved like, I think that maybe Barcelona got more of those seeds than anywhere else. Cause that's really where it popped off. And there's three guys that got like phenos that are really, really amazing that wash that still have that lemon tree flavor, which is always something we're kind of looking for is having that like lemon, that Ohio lemon G or that lemon tree flavor, but washes. Um, and uh, Doc Hayes hit that with the Skittles, I believe. And he's got this limes. And it's just limey, bro. Limey, limey, limey. And it's one of my favorite things to smoke in the whole world. Um, I believe even uh, Slight 23 won first place at Masters with Limes times his Sherbert. 
Um, okay. So that Tricky flavor, and I couldn't pinpoint it. I didn't know that that was slight, number one. Number two, I didn't know that it was lime sherbet. I thought it was something just unique, super unique. Um, so I couldn't even pinpoint the flavors. It was really hard for me to write about it when I was judging, so that's really cool. Um, and it also proves to you that these contests are blind because slight's my fucking homie out there and i would love to see him win but i had no idea that was his fucking entry you know yeah um, that's cool and i was smoking his fucking shit even before and i just couldn't put two and two together i mean i, I know you mentioned og but as as i see it it's really it's pretty hard to find an og that washes yep OGKB, yep. OGKB. Yeah. OG there's OGKB. those yeah. and even that clone only OGKB that came before um uh, what's his name? Thug Pug worked that line or whatever. Um, that like clone only even washes a little bit better than the, the standard clone only OGs. So there's been some crosses out of that OGKB that have been washing that still retain that OG Terp that I've been really liking throughout the world, throughout my travels. OGKB keeps coming back up. I took around a jar of some myself. Um, and also recently i smelled a jar of superior solventless and took a dab when i was in santa rosa superiors from michigan but i got a dab in santa rosa and it was pure og funk and then i just went to michigan you know um didn't link with superior but it was just funny that i was dabbing that stuff in cali um so that's saying something when cali boys are into a michigan brand you know that's cool um it oh, was yeah. pro g i think that i'm getting some there was like an in the pines cross which is an old strain but like an in the pines og cross that somebody was yielding okay on recently that had a really nice tennis ball rubber funk to it it was lacking the uh the citrus but it was still really nice um <clears throat> Even uh, the chem de la chems, when washed, tend to get a little bit of that OG-ness to it because it's just a little bit more than just the chem. The chem leans like more on the top of my mouth, whereas the OG pervades my whole mouth. Um, yeah. And then I've got a question about, this is a very uh, polarizing question in the hash world, but uh, GMO, how do you mm. feel about it? It's not what my strain. It's not what I want to smoke. It <laughs> no. kind of makes me nauseous. It's just a little too strong, whether that's terpene strong or potency strong. Um, it's just not for me. It's great for work. I'll wash it all day long. I try and like wear a gas mask sometimes when it's too much. Um, but yeah, uh, fucking that's also why I like Han Solo Burger and why I really enjoyed that sour garlic cookies because it's the GMO as far as potency as far as yield but it's finished in 55 days rather than 85 it still washes and it doesn't have the halitosis that's what I don't want personally I know that a lot of my friends want it. It's savory to them. They love it. Um, and that's rad. And I'm not mad at them. And I want them to love it because it is great as a hash maker to watch. Yeah, it's a dumpling. <laughs> you know what yeah, I mean? I want everyone to love GMO. Like, trust me. Like, fuck. Um, but no, yeah. I don't personally like it at all. Um, but I do okay. like the potency. So I like sour garlic cookies and I like Han Solo burger. And I like Donnie burger. And I like some of those ones that have the rubber and the gas, but don't have the halitosis or the, uh, DMT like the modifieds, maybe like the trop cookies and 
Yeah, but Trop for me is too cheesy of a line. I'm not into it. Um, yeah, it's great for the color of the wash, and it yields great for a citrus strain. So I love those aspects. It's just not something I want to smoke at all. I smell that like mimosa or Trop or Tangy or any of those in that family, and I'm not yeah. into it. But I smell the lemon bean or the limes, and I'm really into it. So if it has any terpinoline, I'm not into it. But if it has limonene, purely limonene, I'm into it. That's the difference. That's where I kind of make my... I don't know, judgment. You ever you ever grow or fuck around with lemon verbena, the plant? Yeah, I just bro, <laughs> I got some right shit, here, dog. I yeah, have bro, some, I love the smell. That that's funny because I think uh, you know because of course if you're into terpenes, that's funny. I I hope people realize this. If you're into terpenes and you love weed, you can go to a nursery and actually fuck around and grab other plants and yeah, like yeah. experience those plants too and fall in love with them. I've got some. Uh, I've got some really great verbena that I got from the, it's a, it's a, a nursery that's up North that's uh, in Modesto. And they have a section of this nursery that they have like a couple different versions of it that are, you know, and some lavenders and other shit. So yeah, that was, wasn't sure if you got into, into yeah. other uh, sources of terpenes around the house like that. So. All of it, all of it for sure. In fact, uh, I like making my own cologne blends and blends that I'll send to my candle maker friends. So Jordan, big up Jordan. I seen her in the chat a little earlier because, you know, one of those like similar terpene cologne blends she put into a candle for me. So um, yeah, I'm really, really. Does that mean that there's going to be like a nicotine line of cologne that comes out someday that we could... If, if enough to... people like my smell, it's just, I'm, I'm a niche. So, um... I trust you. I trust <laughs> you. So I might, <laughs> I, I like that, bro. Thank you. If you had some turps uh, in there, I might roll, you know, so that. Yeah. Nick, a tea, Kush, cologne, you know, all of it. Yeah. <laughs> Nick, mm-hmm. I want to ask you the California market, the Colorado market. I mean, globally, um, cannabis is going through a tough time right now. Are you optimistic, um, about the next three years or, or what's your outlook like? everyone has to pivot the government's going to pivot the fed is going to pivot so it's going to be different you know as far as what our outlook might look like right now compared to you know what it's going to do um i'm just i i get kind of frozen when it comes to this question and when it comes to what's going to really happen people are like oh aren't you stoked you're going to get to ship you know worldwide or whatever once the um, you know, fed freeze it up. And I'm like, I don't know if that's, what's going to happen, you know, first and foremost. Um, I, I there's, yeah, I, I freeze up what, when it, when it comes to that, advice, that. And I think that's fair. And I think that's, you know, the, sm- the, 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 probably the wise answer, but you know, you're working with a lot of small and mid-sized groups, craft groups that look to distinguish themselves. Um, what advice are you giving them to position themselves against these large multinational corporations with you know these huge war chests um, that are that are coming in and and well you know we uh we learned a lot in this industry over the last decade plus and i learned where my mistakes were i learned how to create larger margins in the solventless world so first and foremost that's how i really come to the table is I say, Hey, don't waste your time running these cultivars. I've done that. You know, let's only run these 10 
or these 15 and let's put those into your SKUs. We're going to use this cultivar for this specific SKU and it's all about allocating which cultivar goes to which SKU. That's really, really important. It's also all about creating byproduct and creating a whole line of other 20 SKUs with that byproduct and not digging into your, um, you know, your initial starting material, creating larger margins. That's a, a very big one. Um, flow and flow of your actual lab facilities via equipment um, and rooms temperature humidity control is also a large one and then creating you know some differentiation running specific strains breeding your own strains in-house for hash varieties that way you're going to stand out it is a race to the bottom right now with these big money companies coming in so i do promote standing out at the top and pro producing the highest quality products possible. And if you can do that while dif differentiating yourself via different cultivars, that's going to be a key. Um, so that's really what I'm pushing right now. Smart. That's awesome, man. I, I, you're, you're one of the uh, founding instructors of the Gangier program. I'd love for you to talk a little bit about that position and, and the role that you play in that program. Yeah, I'm a Gangier council member and I've been there since day one. I was super, super excited when Derek brought this idea to me because I've done, you know, teaching via different programs uh, throughout the world. And even before cannabis, I was a swim instructor. Um, I was a surf instructor, skateboarding, you know, I like that teacher role and I feel like I fulfill it fairly well. I'm blessed with the gift of gab and some, uh, time on the streets learning a lot of this knowledge and with trial and error, I feel like I'm a good candidate to pass it along. So the Gangier program is very much like a sommelier program, but for cannabis. So a sommelier program is not about teaching people to grow grapes. People are like, oh, you're going to teach me to be a grower. And yeah, there's going to be some aspect to that. But like, we're not going to teach you to become a master grower. I had that question uh, actually yesterday. Um, you know, uh, a woman from from Spain actually reached out and was like, hey, I want to join this Gangier program. I want to enhance my growing skills. I don't think the Gangier program is for you. Um, if you're trying to enhance your growing skills or um, enhance your hash making skills, we're going to give you a nice broad structure on cultivation and processing and methodology. We're also going to give you a little bit on the history. We're going to give you something about compliance. You know, we've got Omar Figueroa on uh, the council and he wrote the law in California. We have Mel Frank on the council, and he wrote the book on botany. You know, uh, we had Frenchie on the council. Rest in peace to the family. Um, you know, Frenchie was a huge proponent in bringing old world hash back to the forefront. So we have a lot of amazing people, and I'm, I only listed a few of the amazing people that we've had on the council since day one. And so there is a, an, an online portion to the curriculum, to the program, and people go through that anywhere from two months to two years. Um, and some people <laughs> quicker and some people take longer. Um, so there's an online portion that goes over a lot of that other stuff, the history, um, the context, the botany, breeding, uh, ag, big ag even, you know, and et cetera, et cetera. 
but the main, I'd say, focus on the program is assessment. Just like the sommelier program, we wanted to qualify assessment. We wanted to teach people what quality is, you know, because that's been a huge misnomer in our industry. And in that, we also are creating some standardization in terminology. And uh, it is the platform that I was looking for. You know, I was extremely blessed to bring, have them bring this to my attention. I am the youngest council member and I'm extremely grateful to be a part of this program because it's what I was looking for in all the other programs that I worked with. Um, this is one that really encompasses it all. And this is just the beginning because we're only starting with the, uh, the introductory stages of this curriculum. There's also going to be, you know, um, other certification levels to the program. So, um, yeah. Gangier program. It starts with the online curriculum. Then we do two days of in-person training, which consists of the first day being assessment via appearance and aroma. The second day we do a farm tour and we finish off the day with assessment via flavor and experience. Um, so we really get a nice full rounding of the industry via the online into the in-person trainings where you have multiple instructors surrounding the students discussing what makes something high quality and what makes it not high quality. What is powdery mildew? How can you find powdery mildew, you know, in smell and appearance? Um, you know, a lot of that side of things, um, we focus on at Gangier. And we really focus on the craft farmer as well. So um, it's a big thing that we're seeing be pushed out in uh, not only California, but throughout the rest of the world is the craft, craft farmer, the craft processor, they're getting pushed out. So um, we bring a lot of craft farmers to the table, assess craft farms, talk about why that product's different from uh, an indoor salt-based cultivation that's just pumped out, et cetera, et cetera. Nice. And who, who do you think that the, the program is designed for? Is it the, Great you know, like, is, is it for someone like myself who's been in cannabis for 35 years or is it for someone who's, you know, and, and where does someone like myself fit into a program like that? Are you guys going to create some sort of a, you know, a, a, a club or something or what, what, what other things you guys have planned? Yeah, we're moving away from the term, you know, master uh, ganja, like master sommelier, just like the sommelier uh, industry is actually moving away from that term master and we're going to move into more advanced and other um, nomenclature but yes there will be other levels to this program and to answer your question Addison the program is really geared toward everyone from people trying to enter the industry to people who are well established in the industry I myself will tell you right now that I don't know all there is to the industry and I'm learning each and every day in this program from law to history to you know all the things that I haven't specifically specialized in and even in the assessment I'm learning you know I'm learning to hone in my palate and train my palate um, you had mentioned you know corona and that is something that's affecting people right now and it's killing people's palate um, yep. some for five days some for five months some aren't getting it back so training people to get their palate back is really cool not just in cannabis but in the world right now and it's something that i worked on to get my sense of smell and taste back after getting corona and i was able to get it back pretty quickly but it wasn't easy um, i had to do a lot of tricks and uh 
um, you know, something cool to go along with that is I'm just trying to train my palate even further. Cause something I realized after losing everything and gaining it back, what I've gained is further than what I had before. So I think that you can really, really train your palate to be something special. They talk about super tasters or super smellers. And, um, it's something that I think some people are born with, but I think it's also something that we can train to become. Do you think that because you do smoke spliffs, there's tobacco and spliff. Um, I know that in the wine world, they say that, you know, tobacco smokers don't make very good sommeliers because of uh, how tobacco can affect uh, some of your, your system. Do you think that your consumption of tobacco has any, have you ever felt any sort of negative uh, impact from the tobacco consumption or is it so small? You know, what do you, what do you, what are your sort of thoughts on that? Cause I know you're like a, you know, a relatively healthy person. Great question. Pay attention yeah. to that stuff. I wonder, cause, cause it's, because I mean, someone who knows you, and and I know you were friends. I I I would prefer if you didn't smoke tobacco. Okay, that's just my own preference. But and that's for that's for you because I know that tobacco does have that effect on people. But I know that it's you know it's not so much the what is it the nicotine, it's the it's something else. What anyway, right? But when I when I you know looking at it from the outside, uh, would someone look at it and say maybe like oh well if you're a if you're this high level, is the tobacco affecting you? And do you think it would have an effect in any way? Yeah, no, that's a great question, man. So um, first and foremost, I think I've gotten to a point where tobacco is my baseline, just like a blunt would be someone, a blunt smoker's baseline, yep. whether that has tobacco in the wrapper, whether it's a hemp wrap, yep. um, just like the bong water is someone's baseline. Even if it's a perfectly clean bong, I still taste bong water, if you will, or resin. Um, everyone has a baseline, right? And, uh, or, or the, the terpenes that are left in your, in your rig water. You know what I mean? Um, there's always a, a baseline. And for me, tobacco has grown to be my baseline. Um, I'm not saying that I think maybe eventually I'll get rid of tobacco in my habits or in my diet and become an even better taster or smeller. I don't, mm -hmm. I don't I'm not saying no to that. Um, I'm also starting to do most of my assessments without tobacco, believe it or not. So in class, I try not to smoke the students out with spliffs. Um, so I do most of my assessments now without tobacco. And it took me some time to really dial that in because I needed the tobacco for my assessments. It was the yeah. baseline I needed. And uh, it is still harder for me to assess without tobacco, but it's getting to a point. So um, I'm not opposed to trying you know, without. I'm also, you know, I want everyone to realize that in the United States, we smoke pure, but throughout most of the rest of the world, they use tobacco, um, whether that's in the Chillums in India or in Italy or in Barcelona or in Amsterdam, um, Africa, Jamaica, even, um, you know, throughout the Caribbean, they're using gravel, front to leaf. It's fresh. It's humid. Tobacco helps it burn in, in hot, humid environments, et cetera. There's a, there's a number of reasons. Oh, for sure. And, and, you know, growing up gets you high. Yeah. Spending some time. <laughs> and I mean, sometimes it doesn't get you as high. Sorry. Yeah. I, I want James yeah. to talk about this for sure. Um, but for me, if I smoke pure, I get too high. So run, yeah. run it, James, run it. <laughs> well, I just, I grew up around a lot of people that, you know, wouldn't smoke without blend. And I think that, um, just understanding that, you know, that is a baseline and also understanding that the amount of, even if you're a heavy smoker, cannabis smoker using blend the amount of cannabis or the amount of tobacco that you're using per day versus your typical pack a day smoker is 
minimal. Uh, it's minimal. Minimal. And because I'm in the United States, it's even more minimal because all my friends in Europe use way more tobacco in their blend compared to me. Um, and it's also why I'm one man to a spliff. I don't smoke anybody else's spliff. I smoke my own and nobody smokes my spliff. I smoke it. Yeah, um, if somebody fun. around me needs guns or there's a jar, you know, well, that, if, if you need to roll up, if you can't roll, I'll roll it for you. 100. Yep. Um, that's also my split today. And that happened before Corona. That's just, you know, how I grew smart. up. That's Caribbean culture. I mean, nobody passes splits out there. Uh, nobody yeah. No, I think the first time I like really like, like had that experience. And I always was, you know, I did the, there was a time between 13 and, you know, 18 i'd say where i was definitely passing bowls around and you know we were doing that culture and i love that aspect of the culture right um but at about 18 that pretty much halted um number one it was the uh it was the the uk or 17 16 17 when i met the cat from uk that lived next door to me he was one man to a spliff and in the uk it was a little bit different you know if you're in a a circle and you only one man has weed and you know it's kind of a stingy situation or whatever it may be they roll up they light up they smoke however much they want to smoke and then they pass it if, if it's a that situation the second man smokes the second third of the third man finishes it and the split yeah. is done and that's part of like the uk culture um and then yeah jamaica is even more so one man do a spliff like really no passing and yeah when i was in jamaica when i was 17 or 18 years old um, I think I asked a Bobo or some, you know, uh, a little more militant sect of Rastafari on the beach. I'm like, yo, man, that one smelled different. Let me hit that. And man looked at me with a death glare and he was like, what you chop about? <laughs> nah, man, you nah hit my spliff. One man do a spliff. You done know. What you take one for? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So it changed game for me. Yeah. 100%. 100%. So I want to talk about what you've got going on right now. Um, you're doing a ton of consulting. I'd love to hear about what you what you can talk about. I know on um, the Hashishin with Shiragam, you talked about working on a piece of commercial agitation equipment. I'd love to know, you know, where those things are at and just what more about the projects you're working on. Yeah, I'll preface with, um, unfortunately, I did that piece with uh, Shiragam like four or five years ago, I believe now. Um, maybe three or four years ago, either way, I was about to release uh, the first agitator before the access, before uh, the off spray, um, before the icon actually. And uh, unfortunately my uh, machinist manufacturer in Florida decided to take the idea and run to the patent office without me. There's always something, you know, shady that happens. And, uh, we of course ceased communication and ceased our friendship, which hurts more than anything. Uh, Cause we were friends for 10 years before we went into business, before he uh, decided to steal from me. Cause IP is uh, worth more than gold to me. And that's definitely stealing. Um, and uh, yeah, so um, yeah, since I've done that interview, uh, I have not uh, put out any of my own agitators. Everyone else has, and I do sales for everyone else. So I sell everyone else's. So I'm, I'm happy. I'm happy. Get paid. Get yeah, paid. I get paid. And uh, it's cool to see the units that I sell in facilities that I've designed, you know, whether I designed the actual unit. Um, I feel like I helped 
at least with the methodology that designed those units. So um, I'm in a place where I'm selling enough of them that I'm financially it's, it's beautiful. And uh, I like training on all different units. I like switching it up. It, it helps uh, add, you know, tools to my quiver, if you will. Um, I'm able to walk into a facility with any type of press or any type of agitation unit. Be like, okay, all right, you got a pump there. You've got water coming in, water going out. All right, all right, yeah, let's run it. You know, um, it gives me more confidence. The same way that DJing in Oakland uh, clubs that had, I pulled up and the left turntable's broken or the whole right side of the mixer's broken. I'm like, oh, wait, no, nah, Green B taught me instant doubles like let me just run this like i can act like the left turntable still working but it's broken but nobody in the crowd's gonna know like let's go and that gave me confidence to dj anywhere throughout the world just like it gives me confidence to teach anywhere on any equipment i just pressed hash or pressed rosin in the middle of the canary islands during colima colima is a huge dust storm that comes in from africa comes in from the saharan desert and it happens like once a month and it just dusts the whole island and i pressed rosin during colima to me i'm like that i'm proud on a unit that i'd never used before you know using parchment paper i'd never used but we didn't have a blowout we made fire and everyone wanted to dab it there you go that's so, awesome yeah any, anywhere in the world, anytime. Let's Gives go. Confidence. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's fire, man. So, so what you know? What is taking up a lot of your time these days? Like, how are you dividing your your focus? Um, first and foremost, my son. Um, I got him out here in Colorado full time, and I got him in school. So uh, he's my first focus. And from there, I've got to support you know the family and the house and the situation out here. So I've spent most of my time on the road these days, and I've pivoted into more of a teaching and consulting role. As I mentioned, I am operational in Colorado, um, and we're operational in Missouri, working on more every single day. I got a project in Canada. Um, you know, we've got projects all throughout the United States because basically I start these projects with a consulting deal. And if I like the team and I like the facility and I like the vibe, I'll push it into a licensing agreement. You know, I've worked with Rosin Tech for over, you know, for, I don't know, almost a decade now. We started with like the live solvents experiences, the high times events, and Emerald Cup. And um, we've worked together closely for a long time. And so that relationship works. Um, that's how they start. I want to get a vibe for the company. A lot of people are like, oh, let's just do it right now. And I like to date before I get married, you know? So um, that's where I'm at these days. I've pivoted to teaching for the Gangier and consulting, helping brands launch their solventless division, helping brands launch from the ground up, helping well-established brands bring solventless to the menu, um, helping caregivers, helping licensed entities, helping huge MSOs, um, mm -hmm. multi-state operators, um, shout out Viola, shout out Jushi, shout out, um, you know, even 710 Labs and Leafa and some of, you know, the initial collaborative partners of ours. Um, you know, I love what everyone is doing to push this movement. <laughs> now that is, uh, there's, there's quite a bit I think when it comes to, uh, you know, existing in this industry for as long as you have, it's like, you know, there's, there's, uh, there's a lot of guys that uh, are trying to come in or that are kind of coming in from different angles, but uh, you've been here for forever, man. You know, you've been like uh, just pioneering and fucking hammering the space. And it's like, even, 
you when I was when I was uh, doing the lab stuff, you know, you you've been doing it since then, and you've been going forever. So it seems like uh, it's nice to see that you've kind of uh, that you're able to like you know find the place where you're most comfortable, and then continue to be in Colorado and continue to be in these places. And that's and I know as a parent myself, you know, that it's not easy uh, to to also take on the responsibility of having a kid there all the time. So being, being in it so long, Nick, and, and, and seeing all the things that you've seen, when somebody reaches out to you and says, hey, I'm looking to get involved, you know, what, what advice do you have for them? Are you, are you giving them, um, you know, a, a green light or are you saying like, you know, if, if you've got a well-paying job somewhere else, you might want to reconsider uh, making the transition at this point? Yeah, so... First thing I tell people if they're trying to enter the industry is take initiative. The industry is still brand new. There's still a lot of room for, uh, you know, everyone, I think. Um, it's all in how you enter. Um, so being that the industry is brand new, there's just room. You know, there's room for the back end. There's room for ancillary. There's room to develop new products. You know, I, I need something right now. I'm well established in the industry and I'm always needing something. I need equipment to properly fill rosin carts. It's my only fucking bottleneck right now. Mm -hmm. I can scale up every single other process, but the filling. So make me something in that realm. There's a, there's a job for you in the industry right now. So I don't know. My point is take initiative, um, show uh, motivation, like whether it's trying to enter the industry, whether you're in a role in the industry, but you're trying to move up, um, you know, take initiative, motivate. There's always going to be something for you to teach the owner of that company. Um, if it's a good owner, our ears are always open because we're constantly evolving in this space. Right. Um, yeah, that's, that's the first take on it. If you're trying to get in. Um, and then also, you know, the people that are uh, trying to get into the industry that are well established in the industry at this point, now that I finally have a platform that I'm a, a part of and that I'm proud to be a part of sign up for the Gangier. Yeah. It's going to cost you some initial bucks, but it's a great starting point. Um, whether you're, you know, to get back to that point, whether you're well-established or just trying to enter the industry more than the education you're going to get in the program, it's the connections you're going to make. And that's something I didn't realize while we were building this program, what uh, magnitude it would have on these connections. I've hired a Gangier student to work at the facility in Missouri. Patrick King, Soil King's hired 17 Gangier students to work for him doing sales, right? Um, I've watched uh, other people, other teachers, and even other students create bonds um, in the classroom. So uh, the connections you'll make, you know, we've had students come in, uh, you know, head of sales for Cureleaf, big MSO, uh, well-established, right? We've had uh, people from Cookies Company come into the program. We've had bud tenders. We've had managers. We've had people trying to enter the industry. We've had doctors. We've had attorneys. We've had nurses, you know, trying to get a better understanding because they don't teach that shit in nurse school, you know? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, everyone and uh, everyone's welcome. Check it out. That's cool. That's so great. to shift shift gears a little bit, you were saying earlier how you know you were talking about um, multiple being in multiple states. Obviously, you're doing consulting. Uh, I know that when it comes to you know consulting on multiple gigs and working with different people, 
there's invoicing, there's other things. Do you handle all your own back office or do you have somebody that works with you that helps with that stuff? Um, another thing that I'm looking to hire every day. Um, <laughs> so yes, right now I do handle everything, including scheduling oh. and taxes. And it's not what I want to oh. do. I have had people in the past, one of them being an amazing, you know, not only employee in my lab, but basically, you know, he ended up being almost an assistant to me. He ran my social media as Danny C now runs 710. A lot of the text you'll see in the educational post that 710 labs puts out is like directly from my mouth. Cause Danny C worked for me for so long. And now does all the uh you know the writing and more and photos and media and travels the world um for 710 so um yeah um i've had some amazing people doing it i've also had people that have stolen from me and shied me away from wanting anyone to do that for me and wanting to keep all that stuff to myself so um i am looking for a trustworthy individual to help me starting part-time probably moving into full-time real real soon um, yeah bond. back office back office is very important because it's it's uh you know the infrastructure it's sort of the foundation that everything runs on you know, here, you know, my, my business, we use Monday, you know, dot co. We use so many fucking monthly things that we're paying for that we use even into like rocket lawyer, you know, and shit like that. Oh, yeah. But, um, it's like, for me, it's definitely Kevin, like Kevin makes up as a GM of the company makes up a huge part. Um, but that's why I was, I wasn't sure if you did have, uh, you mentioned, uh, your partner, who's the attorney. I wasn't sure if you had somebody that was doing that stuff for you guys. Cause I know, I know how important that stuff is too for a, a success. No, it's huge. And um, you know, I've had big entities reach out to me and uh, they see how much cons consulting work I'm bringing in every single day and, you know, traveling the world and it's taken up a lot of my time and they see value in that and they reach out and I am looking for, you know, somebody like that that could help even level up my game and bring me to that next level. Cause I definitely see room for improvement there. Um, I guess I just haven't found the right fit. Yep. No, it's, it's important, man. It's, it's definitely like your ability to scale and grow because you're only one person. You can only do so much. And if, and if you need to take time off to sit in your office, to, to, to organize and put together all this other shit, you're not out consulting, you're not making that money. Um, so yeah, that's why it's uh it's definitely a, a big part of what we do. Um, you know, and, and I, I, I run into it all the time with, with, uh, with 800 where it's like, you know, you, me and Kevin just started uh, looking at stuff in a much, you have to start looking at things in like quarterly, <laughs> you know, you have no fucking choice. You have to look at quarters and you have to, you know, even looking at it at, at a year ahead and sort of putting stuff together in that way. And, and, and just in terms of like your creative, uh, you know, bandwidth and what you can put into stuff and how many things you can do. Oh, I don't know if it's for me that I've, because I've gotten older like having ultimate aim on what you're doing and where you want to end because aim is going to show you where you're going to end up, you know, based on what you're putting the energy and effort that you're putting into what you're doing. So wh where would you say your aim is at this point for your business, for your consulting company, for, for the things that you're doing? Um, what's your, your major aim at this point? You know, you touched on a lot of very important needs and uh, future goals of mine is uh, leveling up the consulting business, whether that means bringing on, you know, some partners that are well established in that world, um, or whether it means 
you know, building my own internal consulting firm, um, which is kind of more likely where it's heading right now. Um, and really what I would like to do is build the entire firm from seed to sale, bring on people that are known for cultivation, being on people that are known for compliance. Um, cause I have those people in my Rolodex and it's not me. I play in a tent. Um, mm -hmm. and I call people when I need compliance, you know? Um, yep. so, uh, yeah. I think building that team is a, uh, is a cool future goal for sure. Add more legs to the table. It's smart. You kind of yeah. balance it out, but no, I, and I think you have one of those brands and I think you have, uh, you know, uh, what do you call it? You know, you have chops in the industry for long enough to be able to do that kind of stuff too. It'd be nice to, to see like a, cause you see, you know, we were just talking about it. You see these big equipment companies, a lot of energy and effort goes into these large equipment companies and you work with those guys It'd be nice to see a large solventless extraction consulting company or a firm that mm -hmm. can even get that's so far into consulting into the production of the product that's going to go. Cause we know it all, you know, like we like right now working on the, the, the pyramid pipeline project uh, and putting that stuff together. The final part of the whole project ended up being designing a bag with Grove bags so that now we have a fresh frozen storage transport bag that's actually fucking useful and, and what it's going to be able to kind of finish this whole process. So in I, hope your that business, works. I hope that works. Jack, oh. I love Jack. And I just did my own trials with them and, and uh, I had better results, like literally side by side with the turkey bag. And it sucked because he has fresh frozen specific bags. I was hoping would work for my process and I could tell my clients that, Hey, if they use this bag, it'll extend the shelf yeah. life. Um, and it didn't work for me. A turkey bag did. And it has to do with that air transfer. Um, yep. So, uh, well, it, yeah. has, it has to do with what I call uh, uh, frozen corners, you know. And if you take material and you, and you let the turkey bags light, you know, the, the design that we have put together right now is a multi-part uh, design that has some components that come together that make this. I mean, think of it more of, as a vessel for fresh for a thousand to 2000 grams to travel within. Uh, and that vessel also has uh, other components for, you know, there's a, we're talking about introducing a tag that would then, you know, you could zip tie this tag cause you could take the zip tie tag and put it on a Turkey bag if you wanted, but it would show a differential and temperature change so that now you can protect the farmer who's sending the material out. The transport company that's transporting can protect I love and Jack's then, background, you know, his family came from storing produce and, yep. you know, it, the perfect analogy is, is a bag of lettuce will stay green forever until you open it. Um, yep. So I think that there is something to be said about that. And I'm, I'm ex excited to see what y'all come up with um, for sure. But I, yeah. but I think lots, in lots of niches in this industry, this is a perfect example. You know, there's so much room for, um, you know, new product development, new yep. people entering the industry. Yeah. My point was that, you know, as you add these components or as you build your, your company and you add, you're adding these small components that finish it off, that sort of dial it in, you know, that make it tighter and that make it complete for us with what we're doing right now, that bag is a major part of it. When I look at your, you were talking about your consulting company and possibly growing into a firm, it would be so dope to see a, a, a consulting firm for solventless that's also able to, to fill the whole picture and say, oh, by the way, it starts with source material. We can consult you on how to grow 
the best source material. 100%. And even, solvent, you know, and I, you know, I'm not going to lie and say everything is good for solventless. There's cultivars that you're still going to want to cultivate for yep. the tops for flour and the bottoms for hydrocarbon, plain and yep. simple. So, you know, I... I, you know, I have a hydrocarbon company as well, you know, and I've done consulting on that side. It's not my forte. I would be bringing somebody in that it is their forte. Yep. And I have quite a few people in mind and ready to rock, you know? Um, so yeah, it would be everything from cultivation to compliance, to sales, to processing in all realms, edibles, you know, build out design, architecture, law, everything i love it you should do it man i think i think it's uh i'd love to see that as uh you know something that you that you do come together with because you're already heading in that direction anyway it looks well, like there was know? companies yeah even back in the day that were heading in that direction and they you know wanted me to come on board and be the solventless version i mean i think even like seven years ago medicine man technologies um you know who had a big roll up you know, I would have loved to be a part of something like that, but I just, you know, I don't think it worked. Um, or maybe, it, maybe I'm happy it didn't work. You know, whatever it yeah. may be, those we still got great terms with those guys. You know, not every yeah. relationship leaves on bad terms. So, um, <coughs> yeah, um, I think that there's a, a number of ways and, and opportunities for that type of situation and relationships in the future, for sure. In fact, if anybody's watching out there, um, I'm still probably open to hearing discussions. There, there you have it. See what what you think of Addison when you first met him? Oh God, are you asking me what I thought of Nick or Nick? No, I'm asking Nick. Nick. <laughs> I think we instantly liked each other. Yeah. Um, but you were, you know, working with the lab and I was into the science of it, you know? So yeah, like we had an instant friendship and now we've, I don't know, we've parted in circles and shit over the years. So I think it's still there. <laughs> yeah. Been, been friends for years, man. I think it's, uh, it's definitely been really, it's been rad to, to watch your, you know, cause you are a California guy who went to Colorado and, and you've kind of gotten to to ride both ends of that, you know, and be in both states and, and do a lot of that stuff. And I think that it's it's what's giving you the ability to be super comfortable going to Mass and going to Oklahoma and emerging going to markets, places. yeah, yeah, and just kind of just I, spreading with it. I've, what, I've what's your uh, all of them, you know? What's yeah. your take on Florida? Do you got anything going down in, in the FL or what? No, I'd love to have something going down out there. Um, I've seen a few brands, you know, starting to make their moves out there. Um, it's yep. a very uh, inclusive market, limited licensing market. So it'll be hard for someone like me to get in. But uh, I'm always open to those opportunities, whether they're consulting or roll into a licensing deal or, you know, somehow I get uh, millions and millions of dollars in my bank account and go and do something on my own out there. It might happen. You know what? You know what I was just thinking, man? I saw a video the other day of Burner, and he was doing a video talking about uh, about uh, his first heady rig. He, uh, um, I guess Darby blew him this really great rig, and he was talking about it, and he was showing people like, hey, and there's Q-tips and all this. Maybe the move is nicotine and essential extracts now because burners into concentrates bro and i'm just saying i've already i've already messaged him in fact i i i, I didn't make the introduction a good friend of his um okay. made the introduction so big up the family out there i appreciate that i think that we hit him on a tough business day for all of us i think the brethren got excited and we all were excited and we hit him on 420 
And uh, I think it's it's almost time I, I shoot a little reminder like into that thread, like, hey, what's good, fam? I know we might have hit you on a, a busy day. I think he performed yeah. two different venues on that day alone. Yeah, who, who you know, knows? 420 is tough. So, and he still responded, which is crazy, you know? Because um, I, I have a lot of respect for Burner. I, I, I have a ton of respect for Burner. In fact, I oftentimes am the guy protecting burner in situations where people talk shit about cookies, all oh, the mylars and cookies. And I'm like, have y'all smoked like some of these cultivars that have come out of the cookies camp and like out of, from a proper cultivator that's also lined with cookies. Cause that's also, you know, a situation, you know, in different States, they have different cultivations aligned with that brand. And maybe you didn't smoke something that was that good. And maybe you gave it one chance either way. G- either way GMO is the shit that I'm smoking from cookies and from that family has always been fire since Jigga and Maya brought me the first fucking packs of fucking cookies to Colorado. So I've uh, I got a lot of respect for them and like I do go back with them you know I I was DJing uh, art shows for Maya who was dating Jigga at that time you know and, and we created a relationship back in the day you know before uh, a lot of the hype before a lot of the, the people aligned. <laughs> what what are your thoughts, Addison, on what Nick just said? Do you I, I, are you agreeing with with uh, all that around the, the cookies and stuff or, or where do you what do you feel? You know, I think that once, you know, when you know how the sausage is made, you kind of, you know, you may or may not be into the sausage, but that's just, that's just because I think, you know, and that's not to say anything bad about anybody. I'm very good friends with Jigga, great friends with Sean, with Flux, and, you know, Sherbent Mario is one of my really close friends. Me and me and Burner are mutual friends and we, we, you know, we converse and we've talked and, and we know each other and. Um, but I just think that when it comes to a brand getting so big and becoming so large and putting itself out there into so many places and having that many cultivation partners, uh, you know, it's like Burner's not able to, or there's not a central figure in that company that's able to really, from what I've seen, be able there's to be fakes. You can't do yeah. when there's that many fakes out there. But I think still, so what they've done as far as culture and brand recognition is fucking massive and mad yep. respect to them. It's a big one. And, yeah. it, and it's and they're not done. I think that like there's a part of me that I was really stoked to see that Burner is dabbing and he's getting into that culture. It's only going to draw more attention to it. It's only going to like me even joking about like essential extracts being the extraction company for cookies wherever they go and setting up their lab as much as i joke about it it's a smart move for both companies and i love business and and you know deal bro broker the deal let's go hey like am i am i would i would i think that um you know the i think the only thing that would ever really have the only like 800 pound fucking elephant in the room when it comes to me and cookies is is my company's relationship with grandiflora you know, Grand Flora, Cookies, Grand Flora was with Cookies. And at the time when they left Cookies, they started a contract with us for some management stuff. If anything, I think that might be on, on that side of the camp. They they might. But at the same time, I, I could, Ber, Burner would probably be like, that's not an issue at all. And I have a big company and I don't give a fuck. You're, um, just, Addy so the there's probably, You're just Addy the broker, bro. Whatever. In that play. Hey, man. I, I honestly think. That could think, be a good but, broker play. Look, to, to if, if, if you, when you put those two brands together, the, the ability that they have, 
like what we're talking about, you just asked me what I thought about them. And I'm like, you know, they, they probably need to add some more people to their company that can help uh, align them in different ways in, in more, you know, like what Brad's done with 710, you know, put the money and energy into aligning your brand more directly with who your consumer is and really do it, you know, and, and really put your focus there. I think every company can mature in that way. 710 is I love a great everything example. 710 has done. Everything. The the style and everything that they portray is not my yeah. style, which I think is amazing, you know, because I love everything that they've done. Um, but from like an urban fashion standpoint, I prefer the cookie style. And like, yeah, I mean, really, I prefer a high end fashion style, which is what I feel like I would bring to the table is a little bit more, you know, class to the hash world, not saying well, think- that second tens not classy by any means. That's my family. I helped launch like them. That's, that's my family. And I love everything. Seven tens too but big. what they represent is something different than what I represent. Um, 710 is too big and it's also a competitor in certain ways in, in size of, you know, space in the room when it comes to being a partner with some, a company like cookies where yourself and what you bring to the table would be a very good fit with cookies. Cookies wouldn't have to worry about their hash consumption quality because what you bring to the table is it's wise, proven and true in terms of solving this hash production. That's that's really that that and my brand, brand has zero partners, zero company debt, and we've been around since lean. We're clean, bro. We we clean out here. Crispy. Very, but lean too, you know, like running lean and efficient. Yeah. I mean, if burners watching this, I'm just, you know, you only have to talk to one man. So I like that about my company. It's it makes moves faster too, because when you're talking with big MSOs, it takes forever to make things happen. You know, you never start. mind. Just think about it. If you're a burner. And you're thinking about Massachusetts, you know, and and to your to your licensing deal in Massachusetts, you could also offer, uh, you know, the solventless extraction component to that. So you never know. I mean, maybe maybe it doesn't work though, because when you think about it, what Burner's doing is licensing a brand to a a uh, licensed facility or manufacturer in that state. So then, for him to to also jump in and offer the extraction deal that extraction deal is so it's this is what i'm saying the business is for you to go to massachusetts to whoever's managing the cookies brand and say hey i'm nicotine i'd rather do it on a bigger level i'd rather do it on an international level than just state by state um because that's where i'm going with this and you know i'm interested in starting with a collaborative effort too you know we we don't have to get married right off the bat you know like i was mentioning you know i like burner likes hash now yeah let's go i got i got a jar for burner you know it's a slippery oh here's the other thing here's the other thing you're from marin and burner lives in marin now (laughs) nick you that might be it right there you've got to travel you've got to smoke some you know some wild flavors in a bunch of different countries. Do you have a, is there one memory that, you know, stands out above the rest or, or that comes to mind? If, if I were to ask you, you know, what was, what was one of your most memorable experiences with the, you know, consuming the plant? I mean, my most memorable strain or cultivar and type I'm going to start with that because I always go to that, the, this 
Stella Blue from Any Day Coffee Shop in like 2004, 2006 range, somewhere in there. Stella Blue. Sorry. The hash was called Master Blaster. It was made from the Stella Blue. Um, and it's what first like kicked my senses into the color blue has a flavor. Not just blueberry, but the color blue has a flavor. And so since that day, since I had that Master Blaster from the Stella Blue, um, I've been hunting that flavor, that blue marker flavor, that blue smelly marker flavor. It's like a mix between like chemicals, anise, blue. I'm still going to say blue as a flavor. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome, man. I've, Anyways, I've, that uh, that experience was cool. You know, any day coffee, sh coffee shop is not the most, uh, I don't even know if it's there anymore, but it was not the most like memorable spot and like environment. But the people working were all Rastas and it was like something about, you know, the hash that I was able to get there back in the day. Um, there's also a flower that I like to talk about because that was the hash, right? Master Blaster hash. I didn't actually have the Stella Blue flowers. The Master Blaster hash was like fucking amazing. Um, a flower though that I always reminisce about, it was called Sativa number 17 to me. I got like a whole bunch of varieties of probably somebody's seed pop up in the mountains and it came from Ward, Colorado, which is like up above Nederland. It's a little mountain town that's known for ganja. Like they had to redo all the pipes in the city because of uh, nutrients clogging the system and growing algae. And um, the governor was fully aware of it. And it was, you know, this whole media thing up there. They've always been about the ganja up in Ward. And uh, sorry if I'm putting anybody on blast up there. It's a small town. But um, that sativa number 17 came from Ward, Colorado, and it was special. It just, I don't really like um, that term sativa. Uh, we're moving away from the term sativa and the term indica and talking more about these modulating effects of terpenes as we kind of talked about in the beginning of this section here. Um, but uh, it was one of the very few uplifting varieties, um, had a very unique terpene presence, it had the beta caryophylline, so it had this black pepper vibe, but it really didn't have the anise from the beta caryophylline or any of the terpinoline type of uh, sense. It was more like black pepper and like tropical fruit, um, but something just so different. It also had to do with that cultivation. This guy had been tending this living soil for 20 years prior to this round, you know, old school, old school farmer. Um, and uh, the altitude and that atmospheric pressure in, in Ward, Colorado, something special happens up there. So those are what I'm going to talk about because uh, that's really what I think about when uh, thinking about a special time with the plant. That's dope. That's awesome, man. So what, what do you, what, what's got you excited? What are you looking forward to this year, either personally or professionally? Um, I'm, I'm excited to travel new countries and continents to teach hash making. Um, I have just, as of like three days ago, confirmed DJing, judging a cup, and doing a live demonstration in Guam on 710. So just new emerging markets, but emerging markets that you wouldn't really think about and that I hadn't really thought about are really exciting to me. So 710, Guam, meet in Guam. That is very cool, bro. 
And that's that? the cool thing that I'm able to do is I'm able to get booked on a judging gig, but I'm like, well, how do we create uh, some financial, uh, you know, stimulation, if you will, or how do we pivot just a judging gig and add some features to it and create value, really. You know, I want to create value from my time out there. Um, so we combine judging with DJing and doing a live demo or doing a class, um, emceeing or hosting an event. I like to really combine all of all that I can. Um, yeah. Is the Gangier going to move into concentrates or is that going to be its own... So we have a section in the online curriculum that goes over processing methodology, but um, it's a small section. And we do a segment at the very end of the two-day training um, about assessing concentrates. And I pass out a little sample of uh, some rosin. So all the students get a little taste, something I personally made. Um, or if I didn't personally make it, I at least selected and held the phenotype and grew it or had my neighbor grow it or somebody in the family. So I at least had my hands on it in some form. Um, and that really will change and I'll have my hands on things a lot more in the coming months here, coming classes. Um, I think now after seeing the brand new Gangier campus nestled in the hills of uh, Southern Humboldt, that there could be some opportunity to do not only more within Gangier, but also possibly utilizing that campus to do some, uh, you know, on-site yet off Gangier classes, if you will. That's awesome, man. There could be possibilities. I'm just saying, I'm not guaranteeing anything. Well, I'm not holding, I'm not holding there, it. There could be some possibilities for that. I got my eyes on some areas and uh, some vibes, but uh, yeah. Absolutely. Well, we're gonna share a slurper dab with Addison. I'm gonna rip through this chat and see, cause I'm sure there's been some questions for you. Um, but yeah, Addy, what are you dabbing on? Oh fuck! This is Seven uh, Ten's uh, upside down frown. Beautiful, well, Nick. Man, I, I appreciate you you taking the time, man. You know, you've been around for for more than a hot minute, and uh, and I think it's important that you know the the young guys jumping into this know you know know who, who's who and what's what. You know, right on, bro. Yeah, I appreciate you, Addy, the platform. Thank you so much for having me. This means a lot to me to uh, give me a platform to put my story out there. And uh, I'm just continuously blessed to still be doing what I love, for real. It's been a, a hard road. So yeah, blessed to be here. Where can, uh, where, can people, where can people contact you to have you do consulting? Where can they find you online? What's, your, what's all your stuff there? Um, yeah, email is good. Nick at essential extracts.ca. Um, you can also find me on the web, nicktanum.com. Um, you can also type in djnickatee.com and I think it'll forward to the same website. Um, you can find our business website at essential extracts.ca. 
.co.mo. Um, and as we move forward, uh, we'll be continuing to add websites to that. You can find me on Instagram, N-I-K-K-A underscore underscore T, because they always boot me. Um, I got a few tracks every once in a while or mixtapes up on SoundCloud, so you can find me there. Facebook, uh, I think it's Selecta Nicotee. And uh, yeah, I'm pretty easy to find. I'm pretty easy to find. How about the uh, me. how about the Gongiers program? Gongier, um, I believe if you hit info at gongier.com, our good friend um, and Gongier uh, graduate, sorry, um, is going to be answering those emails and helping direct that. So um, awesome. take a look. Email info at gongier.com, and we got you. Where, where can we find you next, man? What are you doing in the yeah, next, what's, your, uh, next what's your next week look like? Oh man, I was so excited to get like full 10 days in Colorado. Um, and I haven't looked too far past that. I am teaching uh, up in Humboldt uh, the 21st or 22nd through the 26th, something in there. Uh, so you all be up there teaching the Ganjie students this month. Um, you can find me in Guam on 710. I believe there was something else happening uh, in between Ganjier and Guam. Um, but I'm constantly, you know, joining up with friends of mine that are teaching classes. So if you don't want to shell out the money that I charge for my private consulting, um, I also offer over the phone consulting for you know, very reasonable rates, but I also offer group classes and I'm not doing that myself yet. I'm working on that every single day. I'm super, super close. Um, but I do classes with 918 OG in Oklahoma and Rackham's. I did classes with bird extracts in Northern California. <clears throat> so oftentimes I'm joining onto the, their platforms and friends of mine out there and doing those classes that way. So you can definitely hop on board like that. And in the next coming months, I'm going to be releasing some schedule and some uh, announcements regarding some at-home in-person trainings uh, that I'll be holding as well. I've been working on this project for, I guess, three and a half months now. And really, I didn't plan on starting it until about now. Um, but having my roof ripped off, my basement flood and a whole number of other things happen, it pushed me into starting that project even faster. So uh, unfortunately, contractors suck. So it's taken a long time. We're three and a half months, almost four months in to construction. But upon coming home this time, there's more progress that's been made in the last three and a half months. Um, so I'm excited that's coming soon. It's going to be an all around media center, in-person training site. It's going to have a recording studio, um, just a little of all the things that I do in, in one space. Cool. So. Yeah, nice. that's great like all so that I can do um, not only in-person training, but I'll do some uh, uh, streaming in-person training or streaming training as well. So you're going to build up a YouTube channel a little deeper, a little bigger? Maybe I should put that on that channel, but I might just want to push it through my own channels. Um, you know, whether that's um, even on a small level Twitch, cause Twitch pays pretty well. Um, and I feel like it's good for the patrons as well as the users, you know, like myself that have the DJ platform as well, uh, as a teaching platform. But, um, you know, now the technology is there to really build it in house. So, um, just like 
NFTs and just like this metaverse, you know, there's some uh, thoughts of creating my own platform, my own metaverse where I'll have my own classes. Mm -hmm. You could always do OnlyFans too. You know, that's a, that's a route, you know, and maybe I'll run a Streamlabs type of, uh, you know, program that pushes my classes on all those platforms at the same time. And I'm seeing revenue from all of them. I don't know. I like that. If you're a tech genius, get at me because I got fucking ideas. I just don't know how to put them all into play. Holla. Support this man. Support Holla. this man. Multiple revenue streams. I like oh, that. You know what I mean? Nick, we appreciate you. We appreciate your time. Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. Cheers. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. Later.